0: Tuesday morning, I was a successful lawyer making 100,000, you know, six figures, and then on Wednesday, I was, I woke up handcuffed to a hospital bed, charged with attempted murder, and the reason for that is because, like you said, I went and out. And then things went, got worse. Oh, then, right, right. And
1: then things got bad, right? Yeah. Like, that's the and tale then, on that. And then, <laughs> Right, right, exactly, and then
0: things got worse. Like, how could it get worse than being charged with attempted murder? Well, I'll tell you.
1: That's Joseph Naus, and this is The Rich Roll Podcast. Rich Roll Podcast. All right, you guys, greetings. My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. Welcome to the Rich Roll Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I appreciate everybody who has shared the love on social media or told their friends about the show. And of course, thank you to everybody who has made a habit of using the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. You can find that banner ad right there on any episode page on my website. And it really does help us out a lot. So thank you so much. If you're new to the show, what do we do here? Well, each week, I sit down with a thought leader, the best and the brightest across all categories of health, wellness, diet, nutrition, athleticism, fitness, entrepreneurship, mindfulness, meditation, creativity. Uh, And the idea, of course, behind all of this is to help all of us, myself included, unlock and unleash our best, most authentic self. And there is a recurring theme on my podcast, and I think it's a theme that distinguishes what I do a little bit from some of the other podcasts out there, and this is my commitment to really explore issues related to addiction and recovery, of course, because in part that's a big part of my story, Uh, and that's what today's show is all about, really. But we're going to be sailing into some unchartered waters this week and tackling what I think is a very tricky and really difficult subject. There are very few taboos left in society, but sex addiction is one of them. It's something we don't really talk about. We don't feel comfortable talking about. It's not polite cocktail party conversation. And yet there are millions and millions of people out there who suffer from this, and they do it in silence and, I think in many cases, profound shame. Uh, It's an addiction that is incredibly destructive, as we're going to see today, uh, and our guest to venture into this world is a guy called Joseph Knauss. Uh He's an author and he's somebody who is in recovery for both alcohol and sex addiction. And I have to say uh, just right up front that I want to applaud him for having the courage to come in and talk to me so openly, so frankly about what is and has been a very dark struggle for him, this climb from complete Utter despair and darkness into the light. And I think it took a lot of courage and it required a strong sense of self for him to do that. I want to set a little bit of context. I don't want to go too much into his bio because I want him to tell you the story. But I will say this I came across Joseph's story by way of my friend Nick Guth, who's a writer and a director who filmed a movie at our house several years ago. And Nick called me up out of the blue and implored me to check out Joseph's story which I did. Uh, and I was really affected by it. It's the story of a guy who grew up completely impoverished, raised by a young single mom who was a heroin addict with lots of dubious, undesirable boyfriends, who turned into a shut-in and a depressive. And this was really kind of a prison for young Joseph. But he found a way out on sheer determination and self-will. He ends up graduating from Pepperdine Law School, and he becomes this respected lawyer But at age 32, this American dream that he had worked so hard to create and cultivate becomes a complete nightmare when his own sex and alcohol addictions that he had been quietly coveting and feeding collide in this incredibly brutal way that just explodes every facet of this guy's life like an atomic bomb. I got a bunch more I want to say about Joseph before we get into the interview, but first... the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. All right, so as far as today's episode is concerned, this one might be difficult for some of you out there to listen to at times, especially as we unpack what it was like for Joseph. And it's something that he describes in an incredibly honest, open, raw, vulnerable, and and really harrowing way. But his story is as much redemptive as it is cautionary and horrifying. It's it's really about what it took over the last 12 years for Joseph to learn humility the hard way, to find a way to pick up the pieces and and really just survive as an essentially unemployable felon and how he was able to clean up the wreckage of his past and move forward to build a new life. And I think there's a lot of power in that. And I understand, of course, that some may cringe (laughs) at the prospect of listening to this one. I get that. I really do. But I implore you to set it all aside and give it a chance. And, you know, it's important to face the reality that sex addiction doesn't just exist, but that it's very, very real. And I feel personally a responsibility to address it, to shine a light on it. And my hope and my intuition tells me that Joseph and his story just might be a lifeline for someone out there who is dealing with this. The loneliness, the compulsion, the incredible destruction and potential havoc that someone afflicted in this way presents and can create. All of this, uh, Joseph's story, can be found in his uncompromising, quite distressing, haunting, but laudably honest memoir. It's called Straight Pepper Diet. It's quite an incredible read, so I think all of you guys should check it out. And that's it. So buckle up, you guys. Here we go. It's funny. uh, I was introduced to you by Nick Guth. Who uh, is a writer director, um, and I met Nick. I don't know if you know this, but I met Nick originally because he wrote uh, a movie and directed a movie that took place about like eighty percent of it was shot at our house. Uh, it was a movie called Minnie's First Time. Have you seen his, Have you seen his movie? Yeah, yeah, I saw. Uh, uh,
0: when Heidi, his wife, was telling me about him and how much he liked or they liked the book and was thinking about producing it or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sent me a link to it and I started watching it. Right. Uh, which is amazing. Cause I was like, how did I never hear about this movie before? It was pretty.
1: Yeah. It kind of It kind of slipped. slipped under the radar, but it has an amazing cast. Um, yeah, it's like Alec Baldwin, Luke Wilson, Carrie Ann Moss, all these people. And it, it was a trip for us because they rented our house for like five weeks and just took it over. We had to move out and all this sort of stuff. And then, you know, we would stop by and see what was going on, but we didn't really know what was happening. And then when you watch the movie later, and, and, and it's like, oh, Alec Baldwin is sitting at my kitchen table, like eating <laughs> his meal, like it's kind of a surreal, bizarre thing. You know,
0: it's so anyway. like the quintessential Dwell Magazine house, right? Kind of.
1: Well, like Well, yeah, it's a modern kind of architecture. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's it, it, and we rent it out. We have kind of a side business. We rent it out for location shoots, and uh, ultimately, we end up uh, we we book jobs quite often because. We live out in the country, and it looks like a house that would be in the Hollywood Hills, but it it's very difficult to shoot in the Hollywood Hills because you can't – there's nowhere to park all the vehicles because right. there's so many trucks and all that kind of stuff. And so we actually have like some space where you can put the vehicles. So a lot of times it boils down to parking. Yeah. Find yeah. Out. <laughs> I've done a lot of – production oh you have okay so i'm familiar
0: with the concept yeah people don't like to be shooting in beverly hills that's for sure right right. but
1: but in any event um you know nick and i became friends and we've kind of stayed in touch and he reached out to me and was like hey have you you know are you hip to like joseph in his book you should check this out like it's really compelling it's right up your alley of the podcast and i looked into it and i was like oh this is this is like this is like there's so many um points of intersection um you know we have in, in certain respects, our stories are very different, but there are a lot of similarities in our story. So I think there's a lot of cool stuff that we can talk about today. Cool. You know, lawyers, uh, alcoholic lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> so you haven't read my book yet, but like, you know, a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, just really just the feelings, the emotions, that headspace of where, you're at, where you were at when you were in the throes of your addiction and, and kind of the overwhelming, um, you know, demon compulsions that like really kind of propel your behavior patterns was so familiar to me you know that and that deep shame that comes with um doing something that you know you shouldn't be doing and then being in the aftermath of it and it's just that horrible kind of residue like you i mean your prose really really like brought that to the surface and made me feel that in a way that I haven't in a long time, so I appreciate your ability to conjure that up in my conscious. I, it was un, it's uncomfortable, but I'm like, that's what that feels like. I remember.
0: Thanks, man. That's a real compliment. I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, and uh, and it's interesting because your your addiction kind of is is uh, a multi headed hydra, really. You know, you have the alcohol addiction, you have the sex addiction, you have like, you know, this profound nicotine addiction and all of this, these things are kind of, you know, fueling uh, this descent into the dark underbelly of, you know, your worst nightmare, essentially. And I want to play what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, but just to kind of set the stage, um, I really feel like the biggest issue, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, sex addiction really is the core problem and it's almost like alcohol and nicotine were your way of of trying to clamp it down
0: yeah is that, I think is that's, is that
1: accurate you think uh, i think my
0: drug of choice was uh definitely the sex addiction and it was switching mm-hmm. rapidly towards alcohol at the time i had kind of gotten to the point where uh i kind of made the decision that the sex addiction stuff was uh, was really getting dangerous obviously yeah and um you know i was switching to alcohol and cigarettes but that particular night during a blackout, you know, the night that this mm-hmm. all happened, it, it came down to the sex addiction, which really was my downfall, mm-hmm. but also yeah. what saved me.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's that weird equation, right? It's yeah. The, it's the terrible thing that ultimately can provide the foundation for your salvation. yeah. Yeah. You know? But let's uh, well let's let's take it back. Uh, I mean, your upbringing is you know is tragic in many in, in in many ways. And you know, as I'm reading your book and kind of learning about your childhood, my heart's just breaking for this little boy, you know, who grew up in circumstances that really nobody should have to have to you know suffer through. So you know, paint the picture for me a little bit if you could.
0: Well, um, yeah, you know, I grew up in the broken household. My Mom was very young when she had me. She was, I think, just turned 17, or maybe she was, I don't know, I think 16, pregnant, 17 had me. Uh, My dad left when I was six weeks old. We were Mm. extremely poor. We lived in poverty on welfare. And she was a heroin addict. And, um, you know, some of my earliest memories were going to the methadone clinic with her. Actually, they were good memories because that was the time when she was actually trying to get clean Mm. after she'd been arrested with me in the car um, scoring dope. And I have a lot of memories of going to uh, Casablanca, which is an area in Riverside that's where the heroin used to be sold by a lot of the Mexican gangs and mm-hmm. stuff. So I remember going there and stuff and, there, and seeing all the, you know, fascinating stuff that you see in those really dangerous parts of town. But, you know, we lived in a very dangerous area and, and impoverished and there was a lot of welfare and a lot of... Uh, difficulty surviving and my mom once she stopped using heroin she really got things got really bad because she was basically a shut-in depressive Mm -hmm. so she didn't work you know and all she
1: did was sleep all day so she just on the dole like on welfare and surviving that way Yeah, yeah yeah it's like the heroin was the medicine and there was no tools or program to you know take the place of that so ultimately she ends up just sort of Yeah,
0: exactly. You know, she just was
1: ill-equipped
0: for life. You know, she was pregnant when she was super young. She had a high school education. She had no support, you know, Mm -hmm. and she just kind of hunkered down in her bed. I would go to school in the morning, and I would wait. I would come home, and she would still be in bed at 3 o'clock sometimes. And so I kind of—probably the hardest thing about my childhood was probably that, you know, there was a— point in time there where I was really having to find food on my own, you know. Mm. And so I did that by different techniques, you know, that um making friends with rich kids and figuring out a way to go to the upper the nicer schools in the area by using other people's addresses and you know, the boys club kind of saved me during the summers where I wouldn't get school uh, food at school, I would go to the boys club and they would uh, provide food and stuff and and so yeah, it was a rough childhood, you know, my mom um was assaulted by a stranger Mm -hmm. um you know in the house and so i came home to sirens and and that um cops and everything and you know she'd been assaulted and somebody broke into the house and assaulted her and and um you know she didn't tell the family about that so it was just one of those things and yeah so it was really it was a rough childhood
1: yeah a lot of chaos a lot of trauma um, and I feel like in your, in your reflecting back on it in the book, you almost create this disassociative relationship with that period of your life because the book is all written in the first person, you know, I, 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 this is what happened to me and this is what I'm doing, except for the one part about growing up with your mom where it's Joseph. Right. You create this third-person narrator all of a sudden. And so I'm curious, Was that what was the logic behind making that that sort of uh, literary choice.
0: Yeah, it was a it was something that our this, my story editor and I went over a lot, and uh, it just felt right to do that part of it in the third person. Like you said, I'm glad you noticed that. It was, mm-hmm. I was the only chapter in the whole book that I did in the third person. You know that even though there was other flashbacks that weren't in, that were in the first person, I did that one in the third person, and it just felt like it was um, flashing back to this childhood that was different from the rest, of the character in the rest of the mm-hmm. book because it was after a. I don't know. Maybe it was just distance. I'm not. I'm not quite sure. I know. I do know that we wrote it. I wrote. I rewrote it in the first person, and my story editor and I went over it and didn't feel right, and we kept mm-hmm. it in the third person. And I, mm-hmm. I like the choice, but I'm not quite sure how it happened. Or
1: yeah, it's interesting. I think it does. It creates a distance. So it is. It is for me. That's what I th- I saw into it. I was like, you're disassociating with this person that you're having trouble relating to anymore because it's very much. Um, <clears throat> you're a, you're a powerless it's a victim narrative i mean you're a, you're this powerless person who has no control over their circumstances who just finds themselves in this scenario that you know no one would want to find themselves and ultimately you know which compels you to become this survivor like you literally are just trying to figure out how you're going to live and you're on your own really yeah you know which is so Painful to read and, and, you know, it was very eloquently kind of, you know, described and, and, you know, just like I said, like my heart was breaking for you, you know, and I think in looking at that, you know, heroin addicted mother, depressive, you know, alcoholic father who just bolted the minute you were born. I mean, the the sort of, you know, the cards were sort of (laughs) the stars were aligning for you to have future problems with, you know, substances and, and errant behavior patterns.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. That's exactly what the judge said at the sentencing hearing. He really said almost identical to what you just said. I think he said the stage was set, not Mm -hmm. the stage, but, you know, even used a metaphor like that. And, uh, you know, it's weird when you're a kid and you're in that situation. It's, you're just in water, you know, you just, you don't, you're a fish in water. You don't know that that's really going on. Although I did have some relatives that were, what I thought were crazy rich but they were just middle class probably and I would Mm -hmm. go over to their houses and stuff and just be like oh my god it's like being at Disneyland you know they have food in their refrigerator and my aunt had a swimming pool I thought she must have been you know I would think she would be like Bill Gates or something you know (laughs) having a swimming pool to swim in and and then you would go I would go there for a weekend or something and hang out and just like I remember them being like okay stop eating you know you don't have to keep eating and then I would go home and it would be just like oh And it was weird because it was a time, you know, those relatives would talk to me now about this, especially after the book come out and be like, you know, it was a different time, you know, back then you left people alone, you know, I always, I kind of had a bit of a resentment of like, hey, what the hell?
1: (laughs) Yeah, because if you were, if it was happening now, there would have been a lot of involvement, you know, you would, you would have been plucked out of that house and placed somewhere else pretty quickly.
0: Well, I mean, even after the assault of my mom, I I don't know Mm why I'm saying the assault the rape of my mother. You know, I would have been, Child Protective Services would have ripped right. me out of there, but it didn't happen that way then. Um, I think I went to live with my, my aunt for a couple weeks mm-hmm. and then I was right back in the same situation. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it happened again after that. You know, the cops didn't get involved in that, right. that time. So, yeah, it was a, it was a bit dark uh, childhood, but um, it also, you know, led to who I am today and, and also gave me a certain amount of strength of survival. It's funny, I was listening to your podcast of the um, other author that was on. uh, Oh,
1: Khalil. Khalil.
0: You know, I'm not like him. I was, I was interesting. I'm not like him. I didn't develop the hustler thing that he has. He's
1: definitely got some street hustle. Yeah, he's got
0: that street hustle. I didn't have that street hustle. I was more like, uh, I had more of a, uh, a different type of hustle but i, I i'm
1: jealous I, I, well it definitely I, planted the seed of wanting to be sort of upwardly mobile and a respe- a respectable member of society i mean clearly your dream of becoming a lawyer was born out of you know not wanting to live in this chaotic you know precarious way that you were brought up exactly
0: in fact i had a friend who was whose dad was a lawyer and i was just like i'm not very good at science so Mm-hmm. This is it.
1: It's gonna you know, be. I'm, it. I'm gonna do this. And and what's amazing is you make it happen. You know, you really overcome these tremendous odds to get to that place that you dreamed about when you were a kid, living in that house with that mom. I mean, that's that's that is the street survive. That's the street survivor. You know, sort of your version of Khalil's hustle, that you were able to make that work and make that happen. Um, and I think it, it, it kind of gets to something that's a core thing that, that I like to talk about on the podcast with my own recovery is this relationship between kind of self-reliance and self-will. And, and you know, and I described this in my book, like everything I thought when I was in the throes of, of my addiction, I thought that everything good that I had accomplished in my life because, you know, I'd gotten into law school and I'd done certain things academically and in, and in, and in sports was solely attributable to my self-will my ability to work hard my ability to focus and you know not not accepting help from other people just i'm going to buckle down and do it myself until that rubs up against addiction and you start to try to figure that problem out using that same skill set that got you where you were in life and kind of you know banging your head against the wall and realizing this is it's not going to solve this problem man that's that's That's
0: it right there. I mean, that's it. You know, Mm -hmm. when when you're self-reliant and you've been pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, sports, everything you do is about, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to grind this out. If I work hard enough, I can get through this. And that's how I survived through my life. Mm -hmm. And then when I came up against this addiction, I'm thinking to myself, damn, I passed the bar. I got myself out of childhood. I used to be a competitive amateur kickboxer did all these things and I can't stop smoking and drinking and going to prostitutes. Like what is going on? And then what's the answer? Try harder.
1: Right. And that the the idea of therapy, especially where I grew up digging your grave and and the shame spiral is increasing its
0: intensity. So that very thing that helped you survive is killing you. Right. You know,
1: and, and, and in your case, I mean, you really did. I mean, you are a true example of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and you're, your history your upbringing demonstrated to you that other people are not reliable like you had been let down essentially by the people that you needed most in your life to support you so of course you're going to develop this approach and this mindset of self-reliance and i'm just i'm just going to have to do it myself because no one else is going to do this for me everyone else has let me down right yeah exactly so yeah. how did you so how did you like let's just let's do the you know what it was like like how did you get out of you know, out of that living situation and in, you know, into college and 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 create this kind of upwardly mobile trajectory for yourself.
0: Well, I got a job as soon as you were legally able to get a job. I worked at a sporting goods store and um, basically got that from hustle. I walked into the store and was like, "Hey, I need a job." And I said, "We don't have any jobs." And I said, "Just tell me to do something. I'll do it. And if you like what I do, you know, hire me. If you don't, um, mm-hmm. um, don't pay me. And I'll go on my way." So I went in there and I spent 14 hours in a row organizing their shoe section and stuff. So they hired me, and I had that job for a couple of years. And that kind of was the basis of me being able to be self-reliant. You know, I still lived in my mom's house during high school, but I worked full-time, and I was able to buy a car and, mm. you know, support myself and feed myself, you know, literally feed myself. And, um, you know, I think as I describe in the book, I had an incident that was a, was a spiritual experience that um, was, you know, my... Response to the harshness of life, especially when I grew up in Riverside and the hard areas that I grew up in was to back away and was to take the weak stance of when I was bullied by life or people, I backed away. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one time I had an incident where I was bullied, literally bullied in in school, and I kind of snapped internally. I snapped and I just said to myself, you know what, I'm tired of this. I'm never going to be bullied again i would rather die fighting than to live like this and i literally left school that day went and signed up at a kickboxing or actually it was a kung fu gym and a weight gym mm-hmm. and i just went crazy and i just changed my entire life that day and just said no more
1: of this I, if you're no more being a, i don't care if being you, a victim really in general if you're 300 pounds
0: and or a black belt and you pick on me i'm going to hit you until one of us dies and at that point, I never, of course, the way energy works in our world, I never was picked on again at that point, even though I was not like super badass right
1: away or anything. But at least you were, prop- you were emitting a different energy exactly. To the world, right?
0: And so that also carried through in everything else. You know, it wasn't just that, the physical thing. It was the, you know, that uh, with girls, I was terrified of them. And I immediately got my fiance, who was a um, my former fiancee, who was a cheerleader. And I just, uh, if fear approached, I just ignored it and walked through it and mm-hmm. and then i you know i got straight a's i got into college and i did everything everything i wanted to do i just did i worked hard mm-hmm. and i got everything i wanted I got a bunch of scholarships and i did really well in college and uh and then um kickboxing um did really well in that and and uh life was going really well
1: yeah and it's so and interesting because yeah well <laughs> well the thing is like here you are you you literally you know pull yourself out of this situation you create your own reality and you're on this better trajectory and certainly the last thing on your mind is i'm i'm i mean of course i'm never going to be like my mom or the dad that i never met like i'm not going to go into that territory at all drugs and alcohol forget it right i'm going to be a successful lawyer right and then where does it you know so where does that aspect of you know where does that wrench get thrown into your you know divine plan here towards upward mobility well uh
0: the sex addiction was I, I don't the first time i ever realized that i had some sex addiction was i remember i i had seen some prostitutes when i was in riverside growing up and i always just had this little i don't know it was like, there was some effect on my body from it i just remember seeing the prostitutes and going i don't even know what it is but there's something there that's mm-hmm. affecting me um, cigarettes, you know, I, I, my mom smoked and I hated smoking. She used to burn me on accident. You know, she was a junkie. So she, she would light the couch on fire all the time, or she mm-hmm. would accidentally burn me with cigarettes. I hated cigarettes. And then one night I was in New York, um, doing model United nations for the college I went to. And, you know, I was feeling pretty good. Cause I was, I felt like I was on my way up. I was out of poverty and i was going to be okay and Mm -hmm. we went to this bar and i got drunk and i smoked a cigarette for the first time and i cheated on my fiance like in one night i cheated on my fiance i got drunk for the first time and i smoked a cigarette for the first time and it didn't change my life completely right then and there but the seed was set like in my mind that was the new best thing best way you could ever feel there and so everything else kind of was like that like you still got to make a bunch of money so that you can get to the point where you get to do Mm -hmm. that a lot Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the thing. Like, if, if you could do anything you wanted to be doing, what would you be doing? Sitting at a dark bar, smoking cigarettes, drinking a Jack and Coke, and then hopefully get laid at the end of the night.
1: But you had kind of that epiphany on some level. Like, not that you rejiggered your entire life overnight, but that there, there was a realization that occurred. Exactly. We like, I need more of this in my life. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because prior I was living- to that, where, had you been like a drinker or, you know, yeah. like… I. I maybe had 3 or 4 beers my mm-hmm. entire life
0: before I was 21 I think. Right. Cuz right. I, you know, I was
1: I was straight edge. I grew up uh, when I was
0: in high school I took on um straight edge moniker. I, lis- I listened oh, you to were, like, Minor hardcore. Threat, it oh, really? Today and I went to the gigs and Gorilla Biscuits and all that. I used to wear X's on my
1: hand and Oh wow. Did you, you know, know the chromags? I didn't know them, but
0: I've, uh, I've been to gigs with the
1: Cro-Mags. Oh, you and, have? Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've John, John Joseph from the Cro-Mags is a good friend. He's been on the podcast a bunch of times. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, we could talk about that a I, about I think it. I saw
0: them with um, Long Beach. but They closed it down now, but there, was a, there used to be a place in Long Beach that was where mm-hmm. it was like the CBGBs of the West kind of. Um, mm-hmm. God, I can't think of with the name Bad of it. Brains? Or? No, it wasn't with Bad Brains. Oh, I love Bad Brains. I still love Bad mm-hmm. Brains. But but um, it might have been Corrosion and Conformity, mm. COC. I'll ask you. Excel. How long Um, ago? uh, That would probably have been in uh, 1989,
1: maybe? Uh I'll find out. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, But um, all right. So awesome. So, so yeah, so you go from straight edge to dipping your toe into, ooh, that feels good. And, you know, with the amount of trauma that you had suffered and the lack of intimacy in your life and, and all of that, like, it's no wonder that. Suddenly, this you know, salve to that wound suddenly appears, and you realize, like, wow, that feels like a nice warm blanket that I didn't know that I needed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, especially the sex stuff, I you know, it was
0: that was really cure, it was really a great cure. You know, I I, I, looking back on it, it was kind of amazing. I had this, you know, my fiance was this beautiful cheerleader, gorgeous girl, and all I could do was wait to cheat on her, you know, all mm-hmm. the time. And I, and it would be this huge guilt because you just be like, w- first of all, why am I doing this? I have this beautiful fiance. And secondly, you know, this is horrible. Like I'm, I'm risking my whole life. I, I'm trying to, I, at the time I kind of had political aspirations. You know, I was on the, there was a time I was on a couple city council things and was getting mm-hmm. involved in that whole thing. And I'm like, you know, this gets found out. I'm done. You know, right. my whole life is going to be done if I get caught, you know, picking up prostitutes and. You know.
1: Well, and I want to unpack all of this. It's super interesting. Uh, but before we do that, I mean, really, there's the there's the act itself like the this. And then there is the verboten aspect of performing the act like that. I that sort of thrill that comes with doing something that is illicit and and the kind of potential for getting caught like in the balance of those two things. Like, what do you think was the allure really just the sexual act or do you think it would do you you know how much of it was influenced by that Ooh, you know like i'm doing something i'm not supposed to and the kind of risk that comes with that and the stakes being so high for you um yeah there's
0: that was a huge part of it there was definitely i mean especially when i think back of the early parts of it when i would actually pick up street prostitutes i mean jesus christ i mean i would read about you know read about junkies or see junkie junkie movies or whatever. And that experience they talk about, about scoring was very much like that. Like there's that thing where you first see the prostitute and you know that she knows and, and there's this feeling you get in your body of it. And, and that all this anticipation just builds up. It's almost more important than the actual act. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying mm-hmm. with, um, you know, and then there's a, the massage parlors was the exact same way. I, you know, pornography for me was just kind of like a filler to like get over. You know, it's kind of like the way junkies use pills, you know, just your entry,
1: your entry level drug or something like that maintenance. You know, when you can't score, you use that for your methadone. Yeah. 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 You know, (laughs) well, I mean, I find that, you know, your comfort level with talking about it and really owning this aspect of, of, you know, your past. Um, and as a fundamental aspect of you know your addictive condition to be you know really um really fascinating because i think increasingly so like alcoholism is being destigmatized like people are like you know people go to rehab and like i mean especially in la right but it's i think it's becoming more and more kind of like people are like okay with it like this sort of verboten like um, you know anonymous aspect and all the shame that goes with that is slowly dissipating but I think when we get into the sex realm it's still very much like it, it we're in a, we're talking about a completely different world here and I think it's very courageous to kind of own these things that you have done and and be able to speak about them so liberally and and openly um, because I'm sure in the time to- and at the time they caused you an unbelievable amount of pain and And shame, right? But to be able to kind of be past that and talk about it almost clinically uh, is not only refreshing, but I think it's important for a lot of people because it's so pernicious. And I think it is pervasive in our society. And because it, it is so stigmatized, I think there's a lot of people that are suffering from what you went through on some level, but feel that there's no way that they could ever talk about it to anybody. Right. So I appreciate your willingness and your candor in this regard. So let's get into it. Right. Like, what do you think? What is it about this that you found so captivating? And how did it start to kind of unravel your life? Hmm.
0: Well, I think I, I, as I describe in the book, one of my first, one of my first experiences was sex addiction was uh the 976 numbers hmm. and i remember doing that and just it was it was crazy you know I, I mean i remember calling a 976 number on accident because i used to surf and i used to live in you know 60 miles away from the ocean and i would call the surf report and then one time i misdialed and got one of those 976 numbers that was a sex number and it was like i mean you know it was it was the craziest orgasm i ever had in my life and i i literally started calling the numbers like a like a total freak just constantly Uh how old were you uh this is when i was 18 Mm -hmm. or seven maybe 17 i was in high school and i was calling these numbers and then of course i had immediate shame afterwards and then the immediate realization that this you know i was gonna have a 500 dollars phone bill that i couldn't pay for and that was in Mm -hmm. my mom's name and i was gonna have this amazing shame so i worked uh, you know i had a job at the time so i paid it off and called them up and pretended that i was um my dad and talked him down like you know to get the number down <laughs> that go? and i accident i actually blocked myself <laughs> from calling because i couldn't control myself i would mm-hmm. call you know and um it was i guess because i guess the distinction that needs to be made is the difference between like sex that is normal quote unquote versus addiction sex they're completely two different things they have no they have very little in common mm-hmm. very little in common um you know it's just it's just two different things it's it's really um one's just i mean one of the reasons i can be kind of clinical about it is because when i think of my sex addiction i think of it the same way i would think of someone who's addicted to alcohol or or nicotine or pills or anything it was just like taking a pill from me Mm -hmm. you know it was like you needed it you did it and you know it had nothing to do with the sex you had with your girlfriend Mm -hmm. nothing to do with it
1: right you know But that gets confused in the way, you know, culture would perceive it because it's not a drug that you're taking into your body and it's a behavior. And because that behavior kind of defies logic in so many ways, like by your own sort of, you know, description saying, I have this beautiful uh, fiancé, like who in their right mind would cheat on her with some kind of, you know, street urchin prostitute. And yet that compulsion forced you to, to, you know – to participate in these behaviors, which could ultimately just unravel and destroy this life that you had worked so hard to build to (laughs) crawl out of the circumstances in which you were raised. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it just
0: comes down to addiction.
1: You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. politics ambition gender roles and more listen to the conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media there is so much health information out there Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media.
0: Going to your earlier point about how pervasive this is and what a big problem this is is that, you know, looking at pornography, you know. I remember the first time I saw pornography, I saw some of that old school stuff that was stashed in my aunt's closet like The mm-hmm. Debbie Does Dallas and The Green Door and The uh, Deep Throat, you know. And uh, you know, I kind of followed the history of pornography through my life until I stopped using it, and it was on the one hand I was addicted to it, and on the other hand I was a student of it, and I would follow it and You know, there was that point in time where basically, you know, there was obscenity laws that were limiting uh, pornography. And then there was the study that came out that was like the, um, I forget the big congressional report that was done on pornography that listed all the Mm -hmm. names and stuff. And they had the big obscenity things. And there was all these prosecutions on obscenity. And so it was limiting what was out there. Because pornography, just like any other drug, the addict increases their tolerance levels. But the tolerance was being limited by Congress's limitation on mm-hmm. obscenity laws. These pornographers didn't want to get put in prison. But what happened was is when Clinton got uh, elected to office and basically dismantled the obscenity prosecutions from the attorney general's office, the lid was off. And so during, the, during that period of time, the, uh, the pornography just blew up and became more and more and more hardcore
1: i didn't i had no idea about any of this
0: yeah and so you know you just got this really hardcore thing so if you watch pornog- modern pornography it has a tone that is very different than pornography you saw in the 70s and mm-hmm. i think it's attributable to the access and to the consumership of it and so you know it's it's an addiction that is out there that is just very harmful to society and is growing you know and and uh because of the basic dismantling of the obscenity prosecutions by the attorney general, um, it created a real problem. And also the technology created a problem because now you have the internet so people don't have to go into a creepy theater to watch it or go buy or even go rent it from their store. They can get it streaming right to their house. Mm-hmm. And you have the technology of, you know, like what we're on here where someone can just do a podcast with very little equipment. Somebody can just throw on their iPhone and create pornography now. So you have this huge pornography um, addiction problem out there, which was a part of my addiction. But talking about what addiction is like, I think um, sex addiction is like. Pornography is very um, part of the formula for it because it's so much like a drug. You know, you just turn it on. It's there. You get what you need. And one thing I found with my pornography, which was very disturbing, was the tolerance. You know, at first you want to watch, you know, one-on-one this, and then you want to watch two-on-one. And then I remember going to Amsterdam and going into one of those booths and watching pornography in Amsterdam, and uh, and seeing the stuff that was the lid was off. They do not have the same laws that we even have now. And going, oh my god, is this where I'm going? You know, five midgets and a battery
1: cable. Uh, you know, that's right. you know, what it's I'm like saying? crazy like, n- crazy stuff. Yeah, I mean, the kind of arc and the evolution of it is is pretty severe. I mean, how? What are you? Forty five or something? Forty four. Like yeah. Forty four. Okay. See, so I'm 49. I mean, when we were kids, it was like you know your your friend whose dad had a stack of Playboys in the closet or something like that, and that was it, you know. And now, flip on the computer, like young people have, you know, unlimited access to an unlimited amount, completely for free, 24 hours a day. It's a it's a different culture. It's a different relationship with it, and I think that that is really pernicious, you know, on on. On our culture, and I don't know that we've really seen, we've been able to really properly and objectively um, gauge and evaluate um, the fallout from that yet. And I think that there is sort of this acceptable kind of idea, like, oh well, it's just you know whatever, it's it's innocent and it's no big deal. And you know the AVN awards, and you know it's sort of become there's a there's an aspect of pornography that has begun that is encroached on on mainstream acceptability. And I'm not so sure that's so good because it creates this level of, of uh, you know, just sort of acceptance that this is okay, you know, without really, really exploring, evaluating, and determining the true impact of this on our mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being.
0: Right. Exactly. I mean, you know, I try to approach everything with love. So I know that saying to the pornography industry – no, 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 this is bad. And people who view this as bad are bad, bad, bad. That's not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. It does no good for us. But, and not, but, you know, there has to be an understanding of what this is doing to our society. Like you're saying, especially young kids. I mean, who, I would imagine that young kids that are, you know, just turning and uh, having puberty are probably their first access to any type of sexual experience is from watching pornography. Mm-hmm. and And you can imagine what that's like versus the natural evolution of stumbling around and doing what most kids did before the internet.
1: Well, it's creating a, you know, an established, it's establishing a, a bar of, a, of what is normal in a very different place from when we were kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah,
0: yeah. It's so. a, it's a problem that's out there, you know? Um, and like you said, it's not, it's totally Somebody wrote a review of my book recently that I thought was interesting. They said, you know, thank you for writing about sex addiction. It's about 50 years behind where AA is Mm -hmm. as far as public acceptance. And that's exactly right. And we're going to see the results. It's kind of like what's happening with uh, narcotics these days. I mean, the pill addiction is just unbelievable. Like if you go to rehab now, you'll see that majority of people in there are not there for heroin and speed. Mm -hmm. They're there for pills, pills that are legally gotten a lot of the time. Or at least legally started and you know mm-hmm. I think sex addiction is kind of there too
1: right but I think the difference with sex addiction as we kind of touched on earlier is there is a level of kind of dark shame there's a curtain that hangs over it like y- people talk about the pills that they're taking you know there's, it's a different kind of cultural relationship that we have to that, to that than we do with sex which is why I think it's still so much in the rear view mirror and is going to take a little bit more time before we can really kind of, you know, address it in an open forum, which I think is why, you know, your, your willingness and your courage to talk about it so openly is, is really important to this discourse. So when, you know, when does it, so, so, so for you, it's, it starts with the, the nine, seven, six numbers or whatever, the phone, the phone calls, and then it becomes, you know, pornography. And then it's, massage parlors and you know it, just, it explodes from there right like but when does it become something where you're like this is really derailing my life
0: probably when i was
1: engaged and
0: i was doing you know i was just doing the i i would you know i was cheating where i would do a lot of one night stands i'd pick up girls and risking you know getting caught doing that and then you know sneaking pornography and then the occasional street hooker which was like the, you know, that's the holy grail of the sex addiction, at least in my sex addiction, was the street hookers. I mean, there's nothing that has more risk associated with it, and it has this seediness to it. It's like the more seedy it is, the bigger the payoff, you know, it's and like the worse the guilt.
1: Ter- like, I'd just be terrified of that whole thing. Like, I wouldn't even know how to approach I know. <laughs> how I learned that,
0: I, you know, I recount this thing in, in my in the book, but there was a point where I was reading the paper and I see this Article about a local um, city council person who had just been picked up by the cops for doing exactly what I was doing on down in University Avenue in Riverside, picking up a prostitute. And I just looked at him. And there's a picture of him and his family on the on the front page. And my fiance at the time was showing it to me, going, "Hey, look at this." And I looked at it. and I just felt like the air just suck out every cell in my body because I was like, "Oh my god, that's what I'm doing." That guy's life is destroyed now. Like he's gone. Mm-hmm. His political career is over. He's probably going to get a divorce. Mm-hmm. And obviously, he's a sex addict,
1: or he wouldn't be, you know, picking up prostitutes on the street. It's the extent to which you can so rapidly destroy your life through this addiction is pretty profound. You know, it's like it's like gambling. You could go and like you know bet your whole life in you know one bet and oh, destroy yeah. yourself. And in one single act, as you've kind of experienced in your own life, uh, you know, it, it, your whole entire life can be undone. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, the, you know, and the massage parlors was kind of a response to that. I did have some brain going on. So I was like, okay, I cannot keep doing this. The numbers eventually are going to catch up with me. So then I got into the massage parlors and the massage parlors is a fascinating thing that nobody really talks about. And I really wanted, want people to know about this. You know, there's like these legal prostitution
1: places out there. Everywhere. I mean, you see them all over the place. It's crazy in LA. You go down, you drive down any major boulevard. You know, Pico, Santa Monica Boulevard, and you see these little low slung, like they're in little, you know, crappy little, uh, you know, drive through little malls or little houses and they have neon lights in the window that say massage and you're like, what's going on in there? Like, it just looks not right, you know? And they are everywhere. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them all over town. And the one that I you know,
0: ended my career on, so to speak, was on, uh, you know, was in Santa Monica and it's super high-end neighborhood, but they were uh, grandfathered in, I presume, because they'd been there since the, you know, that was a marine town, I think, Santa Monica, or maybe it was Navy or whatever, but, you know, they'd been there for years. There's like three on Pico Boulevard on the Santa Monica side of the street, you know, which is houses that are a thousand square
1: feet that cost a million bucks and there's a massage parlor there, you know? So what is, like, how does that all work? Like, what? I mean, you're a lawyer, like, what is the legality behind what is actually happening here. I mean, they are legitimate businesses as massage parlors, but why aren't they getting busted and why aren't there crackdowns on these businesses?
0: Well, one reason it's really difficult to bust them because they are so well run. They're they're operated like a McDonald's franchise. I mean, they are tightly controlled. You go to any massage parlor and they're all controlled the exact same way. You never see another patron. Right? You never cross paths with another patron, maybe in the parking lot or something. Uh, you're in a closed room, you know, with locked doors. You go in. There's a, a security gate between you and them getting in. So if they ever had a raid or something, they could close it down. Um, and a lot of people probably go there and don't have sexual favors. You know, I got to the point where a lot of people, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I've been to a massage parlor, too. I just get a hand job. And I'd be like, Well, I advanced to the point where I was having sex with the massage parlor girls. And I kind of knew how to do that the way an alcohol or way an addict knows how to there's buy There's got to be like a
1: whole weird etiquette to that, right? Like yeah, there's yeah. some unwritten rule book on how all that stuff works.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I just kind of learned it as I went. Like you do this, you do that. You know, where do you place the towel? Do you take off all your clothes? Do what do you say? They're going to say this question. How do you answer it? You know, I, I knew the whole thing. I mean, I've probably been to a massage parlor, I don't know, hundreds of times. Wow. I got to the point at some point where I would, have two girls at a massage parlor, you know that i would be like i need another one to come in uh-huh. and you know so it would be and <sighs> you know exactly how much to pay and everything and it and the and the thing was is it was uh the risk was so low because like you said you know i would even i remember searching the internet going I, am i going to get busted doing this eventually and the reality was given the number of massage parlors out there versus the number of raids and stuff and busts on them because they're not causing any the police are not you know they're not visible to society they are paying their taxes they are good tenants they're very quiet so this is really one of those quote-unquote victimless crimes there's a lot of victims actually but But, it's victimless crimes aren't
1: there there's got to be some weird kind of slavery issues going on with this as well right I, i would think that there would be civic outcry and you know it's sort of a not in my backyard kind of thing like a lot of I don't. I just don't understand how most these things them, are allowed to exist. Well, most of them are in county
0: land, not city land. Santa Monica was actually an exception because it was probably grandfathered in, but most of them are in county areas. Like if you go where in the Inland Empire where I grew up, they would be in San Bernardino County, out in like Highland and stuff. They weren't in the major city, and there were a lot of times they're in commercial areas. And I think you're right. You know, that's one thing. I remember talking to a friend of mine, being like, "Well, I didn't hurt anybody." This is early in sobriety early in recovery, I should say, saying, I didn't hurt anybody. And they're like, what do you think those, you think those girls are in there willingly wanting to do this? No, they're all there on, you know, that whole visa promise thing. You know, they're mm-hmm. probably paying off a visa or whatever they're doing. They can't work legally. So they're in there doing it. And they, they, most of them live in there, you know, well, <sighs> yes. depending on the, depending on where it is and the ones That's in, really in Santa Monica
1: and stuff, they don't live there Yeah, It's gnarly. It's horrible. And is this, I mean, I see them all over LA, but do, is, do these exist in other cities in the same way? I mean, all the
0: ones I did were in Southern California, but they certainly, there were certain cities that were interesting. Like when I was in Oceanside, um, that was a Marine town and they were, there was a lot of them, but they were all highly regulated. Best you're going to do there is a hand job. And so
1: because <laughs> that didn't work why, for me. Why is that? Like,
0: I don't know. I think it's probably an agreement with the police that, you know, they exist and they're only going to let them go so far. And there was so many people doing it, um, cause there were so many Marines, you know, that they just probably could get away with that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not quite sure. Um, It's a weird thing. It's a weird thing nobody talks about, you know. Occasionally, if you do a Google search of it, you'll probably see, you know, a couple articles on some raids or something, and you know. But I think it's just one of those things where, it's not visible. You know, it's not like there's not street walkers walking down the street. No one's complaining about them. You know, it's all
1: under wraps. That's weird. It's really weird. Yeah, it's crazy. All right, so you're going to these places, and you're, you know, you're totally dialed in on the pornography, and you're picking of prostitutes here and there. I mean, what what is going on for you, kind of biochemically or emotionally? Like, what is the what is the like? How does it how does it feel? Like, what is the compulsion to do this, and what is it allowing you to kind of check out from, or um, or or what is the rush of that for you? Like, I'm trying to understand what it is that's driving you to sort of you know repeat this behavior pattern.
0: I look back on it and I'm sure there's some, you know, therapy answer to that question. But when I really look back on it and think about what was I thinking at the time, it was just like, Hey, this is the best feeling you can possibly imagine. Why would you not repeat it? So, you know, I would I remember I worked at this big law firm and I would go out to um, the desert to do hearings out in like Palm. Was it? Um, I forget the court out there, but the court out by Rancho Mirage and it mm-hmm. covers all Palm desert and everything. And I would do three or four hearings at once. And on the way back, you know, I'd already build, you know, I'd build 15 hours in one day doing the trip out there. And on the way back, I would just stop at the massage parlor and I'd be like, hey, I I just build 15 hours. I can, you know, I can get this pleasure. And the pleasure was, you know, I've never shot heroin, but I know a lot of people who have. And whenever I describe what this was like, I always think of it must be like what heroin was like. The Mm -hmm. orgasm just was like taking, a, what I imagine would be like taking a shot of heroin, just un-friggin' believable, you know, mm-hmm. just, and the, the build-up to it, the anticipation to it, the driving to the massage parlor, the walking in, the going through the ritual of paying the amount, answering the mama san the correct way, doing the whole thing, they build it up. They're part of that. They know, you know,
1: how you work. Right, you it's know? sort of like all the paraphernalia that's yeah. associated with, with the drug or getting ready to do the drug. And, and then,
0: Man, it's like the cigarette smoker who throws away their pack and pours water over it. And then the next day goes out and puts the pack of cigarettes in the microwave and digs them out of the trash. You know, it was, it was exactly like that. I swear to God, every single time I did it, I would, I would be on that massage table and the girl would leave. And I would go, oh, my God, that's the last time I'll ever do this. My God, please don't get me arrested. Don't get me caught. I will never do this again.
1: Right, just the shame and just feeling just, like you needed to take a Silkwood shower afterwards and silk cleanse shower, yourself exactly. of, of, you know, the kind of moral and physical residue of this experience. Yeah, and
0: just the secret of it, you know, and the money, not to mention the money. It cost $100 a pop every time I did it. You know, I was a lawyer making good money at the time, but
1: but it's the double life thing, too. You're leading this completely separate existence that no one knows about that you can't possibly talk to anybody about? I mean, were there any friends that you confided in that you, that who who knew what you were doing?
0: No, no, Mm -hmm. nobody knew that. And you're getting away with it
1: for a while. Right. But you must know on some level that at some point something's going to happen, but you're, you're, you're willing to take that risk anyway because you're, you're addicted.
0: Yeah. The massage parlors, you know, you could go a long way, not getting caught doing those. You park away, you, you know, they're in, remote locations a lot of times you you know you're very careful the way you do it i mean maybe someone sees you walking out the back door i mean they're very careful about the way they do it you go in the front door you leave in the back the back doorway is usually off to an area that's kind of secluded a lot of times they have parking in the back i mean they're they know where their are mm. their bread is buttered you know mm-hmm. so you could get along i mean the way my crash and burn happened was just bizarre by any
1: Yeah, well I want to I want to get into this story because it's quite <laughs> an epic downfall. I mean, this is this story is insane like how this kind of blows up in your face, right? It begins relatively innocently. Few drinks at Liquid Kitty, right? <laughs> Which is a bar I used to get drunk at. quite, yeah. quite a bit. Uh, you're <laughs> <Yeah>. a hipster. <laughs> so, <laughs> you're a hipster when I hated hipsters <laughs> momentarily. You know, listen, you went to the bar. You know, <laughs> who are you? Ta- who are you talking about? Right. Well, <laughs> oh. um, it was interesting because you kind of describe it in the, in the. You're you're you've 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 started this law firm. You have a law partner. And you have a really big kind of appointment early in the morning where you're going to meet your biggest client to play golf at 7 o'clock in the morning. And so you know the right thing to do is to go to bed early and to stay in. And yet you can't help yourself from, you know, smoking a bunch of cigarettes, having some drinks at your apartment, and ultimately with a buzz on, like, heading out to the bar. Yeah. And even at the bar, I'm sure your intention was I'm just going to have a few drinks and go home because I'm definitely going to wake up in time to go play golf. Well, I intentionally left, uh, only brought cash, thought I'd only brought cash. And then at the last
0: minute I grabbed my jacket and it had my wallet in it or this, I probably would, you know, this whole thing might not have happened the way it happened. And I ended up spending like, I don't know what the bill was, but I spent, you know, $70 on drinks and I went insane, you know, Mm -hmm. went into a blackout.
1: Yeah. So let's walk, walk, walk us through like what happened.
0: Well, okay. I'll, you know straight pepper diet a memoir the, the the pitch i always say is on tuesday morning i was a successful lawyer making a hundred thousand, you know six figures and then on wednesday i was i woke up handcuffed to a hospital bed charged with attempted murder
1: and the reason for that is because like you said i went and out, and then things went got worse Oh right, right and then things got bad right yeah. like that's the tail on that and <laughs>
0: then right right exactly and then things got worse like how could they get worse than being charged with attempted murder well i'll tell you um so you know, like I said, at the time I was actually tamping down the massage parlors and uh, hadn't been going a lot. I had really been transferring over to alcohol and cigarettes as my go-to drug.
1: And did you think like, I've got a grip on this? I don't know. I was going kind
0: of nuts at that time. You know, I just, I, I kept on failing up in my legal career. You know, every time I would burn out at one firm i would get hired at another firm for more money and then eventually i got to this big firm in in santa monica that was you know really great firm and i ended up burning out of there and before they fired me i went and started my own firm and then i was Mm -hmm. scared that we weren't going to do that well and we were just doing awesome i had all these clients and you know and so i had a free time and a lot of money with bad combination for an Mm -hmm. addict so anyways i went you know that night i had this big um like you said, I had this big, big uh, client meeting with my partner and this client at a golf course at crack of dawn. So I wasn't going to go out, but I did go out of course. And uh, I got, I went into a blackout and I walked down the street back towards my condo. And I went to an ATM machine, apparently in a blackout. Cause I don't remember going to the ATM machine and got a hundred dollars out, which is how much you, it costs to do the massage par thing. It's $40 for to get in and $60 for the quote unquote tip. And I went to this massage parlor that was connected to this like, uh, it was like an old motel, how they were shaped in a C, and one of the legs was a massage parlor that I'd been to Mm -hmm. a couple times. And it was really close to my house in in the the condo in um, Santa Monica. And um, most of this is from the police report. I was blacked out, so I remember. But I was pounding on the massage massage parlor door, and they didn't answer, of course, because it was two in the morning and no one was there. Or 3 in the morning or 2 in the morning. I'm not quite sure. And then I went around back, and I climbed in the window. And uh, the uh, the way it was connected to the other units, I actually ended up climbing into someone's window that wasn't mm-hmm. the massage part. It was right next to it. Mm-hmm. And so I climbed in there, and this guy was kind of a neat freak. So the bathroom was completely clear, and it, w- it looked like what the massage bar bathroom, probably identical because they were old motel right. rooms. And I walk in, uh, and you know, so there's this guy asleep, and I'm naked. I take off all my clothes, and I'm naked. And he has this industrial fan going, so there's no noise. And he wakes up from the smell of nicotine and alcohol, and there I am, you know, six foot four, two hundred twenty pound white guy with a hard on standing over Ugh, his bed. Oh my god! He goes nuts,
1: and um, we fight. And um, you have? Do you have any memory of this, or you're just this is how you've pieced it together? all that's from the police report but the memory i have is
0: of spinning around in a in like a i like i say in the book like a palsy ballerina in the dark spinning around and kind of seeing lights like you mm-hmm. do in the when your peripheral vision is messed up and screaming you know and so we're in the dark and he's screaming and i'm trying to shut him up and eventually i put him in a uh um, carotid artery chokehold um and uh realize that i'm gonna kill him if i don't let him go so i let him go and he runs out the front door i run out the back of course i drop my wallet and my id and everything and mm-hmm. my aclu card and <laughs> what else crack up on and uh my amnesty international card and uh he chases me <laughs> oh, down <laughs> you know the cops must have been cracking up you know they find my wallet with this my state bar card the peacenik and my, who yeah.
1: <laughs> like almost kills this guy. I think he's in a, oh my
0: goodness. So this guy calls out to one of his neighbor buddies and, and they trapped me in the yard across the street in Santa Monica and they just beat the living crap out of me. He, he had a skateboard and he was, I don't know why he had a skateboard. I'm just going to grab him. The other guy had a bat and I was trying to get away and there was all these people gathered around and there was police and everything and, but before the police were were fully there, they, they just started beating the hell out of me and uh, he beat me pretty bad. I, I actually split, he split open my head I had to have like staples to close it down, and I, you know, I said a bunch of crazy things to him. I don't remember it. I just remember what was in the police, re- you know, I see what was in the police report. Said all kinds of crazy shit about Hawaii and you know, a Volkswagen and all kinds of nonsensical stuff. And I think at some point he realized he was going to kill me if he kept hitting me because even though he's hitting me, I wasn't still moving because I was so anesthetized that I wasn't feeling it. Mm-hmm. But at some point, I do recall thinking to myself, if he gets hit, if he keeps hitting me, I'll die. So eventually he lets me go and I go down the street and I'm stumbling down the street, you know, bleeding everywhere and the cops pick me up. Wow.
1: And the cop, well, I, in the book, like you're the, you, you start running, right? And the cops are, you kind of like hide in somebody's bush, like yeah. in their yard. And the cops are like come out and you're like, all right, you know, I'm not yeah. running away from this. I'm not going to get shot. Right, right, right. right.
0: <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, um, and they, you know, I, I must've blacked out cause I don't remember being in, I, I don't remember being in the ambulance, but I was, uh, I must've re blacked out or whatever you call it. I do recall that part of it where the cops were there, but then I don't recall after that. But, um, I do, mm-hmm. I recall waking up in the hospital room, handcuffed. This is mm-hmm. the second time I've been handcuffed to a hospital bed. First time was when I had my uh, DUI that I had where I
1: rolled a car over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You had a felony DUI that, and that didn't prevent you from drinking. It was pending. Drinking. You know, yeah, yeah. And, um, so did you you were you probably didn't even have you probably weren't even did you have your license suspended at that time anyway but No you,
0: no but uh, DUI doesn't get you suspended from the bar
1: No 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 your driver's license
0: suspended Oh no no, no. we'd worked out a deal um I was going to have to wear an ankle bracelet The ironic thing was I was supposed to report to a to the uh, AA meetings like the next day after this happened which would have been you know <laughs> interesting
1: But um yeah, so that, and was, then you kind of wake up from your blackout, coming to, thinking, "Oh man, am I late for my golf game?" And then realizing, like, "Oh, I'm not in my bed. Right? Oh, I'm handcuffed to this bed, and somebody's, you know, some somebody's attending to my bleeding forehead. Right? There's a cop, you know, there's a
0: cop standing over me, and there's a doctor that staples my head shut, which I don't feel at all because I'm still anesthetized. And uh, you know, I don't know what I'm being charged with. I call my ex. A girlfriend who's a criminal defense attorney who was the same one who handled actually she was in the firm that handled the first one mm-hmm. that must and, have been uh, a really
1: fun call to make
0: yeah yeah well she asked me what i was being charged with and i said i don't know probably solicitation of prostitution and um because i didn't remember what had happened and she gets there and hours hours later i get there and that's when the big reveal happens of oh you're not being charged with you know um um Misdemeanor. You're being charged with uh, attempted murder, mm-hmm.
1: and the attempted murder charge emanates from this chokehold, right? Right. Like, right. Uh, because you put that move on that dude, that yeah. was the determinative thing well, in coming up with that charge.
0: Yeah. Well, that move is
1: a corroded artery hold. It has a very derogatory
0: name amongst the LAPD, but it's uh, not no longer allowed to be used by them because it kills certain ethnicities because they have a different rate or some something to do with the blood. Hmm. to the brain and uh, so they would always use it in the sheriff's and the sheriff's academy used to teach it you know how to do it so you would put somebody out you do it for a certain amount of time it knocks somebody out you do it a little longer to kill them hmm. so for my martial arts training i kind of instinctively did that um so yeah that was so that's how it are, all starts yeah, Chapter so this one.
1: Is, this is this is chapter one right and and the amazing thing is leading up to this this moment you're in your office and and the way that you describe like that kind of tug that like pull, like you're, you're what really brought me back to my own experiences with, with alcoholism was that feeling of sitting in your desk, being unproductive, knowing you should be working, not being able to work and, and knowing like you should just be a good boy, but having that tug, like, and you know that like, it's going to take you to a dark place. Even if your intention is only like, well, I'm just going to, Have a couple drinks. Fast forward to you know you being charged with attempted murder and now facing serious jail time. Yeah, you know and and that that like you know that arc that literally transpires in a matter of hours is really the that that encapsulates alcoholism and addiction to a T. You know just how incredibly. damaging it can be and how it sneaks up on you right and suddenly like you would have never chosen to do any of these things and now you go to jail you're disbarred you can't pursue the thing that you always wanted to pursue as a career i mean the fallout is to say it's extensive is to is to understate it to say the least yeah it was quite the
0: bottom i mean you know I'll, Addiction always has the same, every addiction story is exactly the same. You know, you, you started out just doing it and you liked it and then it became a problem. And then, you know, if you're in the recovery, you, you stop through a mm-hmm. through some type of methodology. Mine just happens to have this really crunchy top to it. And that is lawyer, you know, goes into a blackout, gets charged with um, attempted murder and ultimately sex crimes, gets disbarred, ends up, you know, having to go to prison and all this terrible stuff but that's just the crunchy top to the whole story the reality is the thing that people relate to is the is what they can feel in their hearts is the feelings that go with it and Mm -hmm. those are all the same for all addicts right it's Mm -hmm. all it's all about that tug that you're describing and that inability to stop something that you think intellectually you should be able to stop that's Mm -hmm. why you know it's a disease yeah
1: and so you end up in jail how you're in jail for 18 months how long did you go to jail for i only went to jail i actually went to prison
0: prison for uh, thinking, yeah. three months for what's called oh, a three. 90-day evaluation uh-huh. um, actually four months uh, supposed to be three months but it ended up being four uh for a what's called a 90-day evaluation which is what they do um for privileged people <laughs> that get busted uh you know um and uh they're supposed to evaluate you and then they the judge decides whether to send you back or not i mm-hmm. had what's called a two-year lid so i could have done two years you know they were looking at putting me in prison for close you know it could have been 20 years I was right well attempted murder
1: you know is no joke right so the fact that you really didn't spend that much time compared to what it could have been well the attempted
0: murder charge was dropped at that point i was charged with all these sex crimes uh, okay. i was charged with uh, right. assault with intent to commit rape i was charged with burglary i was charged with um, straight assault uh, with um um five or six different right crimes.
1: i mean we could get lost in the weeds on the legal aspects of this yeah, too yeah. like how could this p- p- you know possibly be an attempted rape charge when it was a dude and it you know it's like i had to how go back that, to my law school how does days that work,
0: you know? i had to go back to my law school days and uh, yeah. and look at uh, factual impossibility to an attempt crime you know there's factual impossibility is not a defense, not a defense. to an attempt crimes right we learned mm-hmm. that in uh, you know crim 101 right right so but um yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's that angle of the book. It's not, some, it's not a big part of the book, but there is that angle of the book of like, you know, uh, what's the duty of a prosecutor? The duty of every other attorney in the world besides for a prosecutor is to defend or to, is to represent their client at all cost, except for breaking the law, right? Except for violating the law. The duty of the prosecutor is to seek justice. So is that what they're doing? Mm. hell no mm-hmm. they're seeking they're doing everything everything everybody else does everybody mm-hmm. knew that you know i'll let the reader decide what they think about it based on the facts it's one of the reasons in the book i put a lot of transcripts right from the court mm-hmm. you know so they could really see what happened and what the judge said and everything but that's a different angle of the book you know it's really an addiction memoir the, the, yeah. The that yeah that over things
1: yeah it's very palpable in that regard i mean so you you know what is what was your experience in in prison like how did it measure up to, you know, my my experience of, of prison is informed entirely by television and movies, right? So what is the reality of that experience versus what one might imagine who just, you know, sees it on a screen? Well, there's three chapters
0: in the book that are um, dedicated to my experience at, at uh, Twin Towers County Jail and then to Chino State Prison. <laughs> and, oh, man. I just... I told Kelly, my, my uh, criminal defense attorney, I told her, you know, make sure that um, I think you have an option of a, veg- of a vegetarian menu or not when you go to jail, make sure they know I'm a vegetarian and make sure I get close to a gym, you know, and that type of thing. I, I just could not. I, I have a degree in criminal justice, by the way. And uh, I could not. I could not wrap my head around the idea that they would send someone like me to one of those prisons that I saw in prison documentaries and in movies. Unfortunately, right before I went, I did do a little research on Chino State Prison, and it turns out it's the deadliest prison in in the country. And the reason is is because it's a transfer prison where they put everybody before they go out to the other prisons. Mm -hmm. And so it makes it very chaotic and dangerous. And it's also a failing prison uh, structurally, so there's just a lot of bad technology. And uh, uh, horrifying doesn't start to tell how gnarly our prison system is. Uh, It's it's just devastating. The idea that we're one of the most privileged countries in the world, and we consider ourselves the top of democracy and the leaders of the free world. And yet we treat our prisoners the way we do is it's just shocking. Mm. It's just mind blowing. I mean, the, the, the way prisoners are, the danger of being in there is it's unbelievable. It's just, I, I mean, I, re- I count it. I recount it in the book, but I want, I want people to get that from this book, reading this book of like, you know, there's over, I think there's over a hundred thousand people incarcerated in California alone. If you think this doesn't affect you, you're wrong. It affects everybody. Almost most of us know somebody who's been incarcerated at one time or another. And to treat our criminals that way is just it's it's barbaric. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's horrible.
1: And the the kind of prison yard, you know, uh, shank and you know, ganging up and the alliances and all that stuff is very real, right? Like you had some pretty close. Uh, up close and personal experiences with that. I mean, one of the first days I was at Chino Prison, the guy sitting right next
0: to me got shanked within five feet of me. You know, and um, I, I'm not sure if he died; he never returned, but it looked like he died. You know, mm. he was in a pool of blood when they pulled him away. I saw other um, shankings. Um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a horrible thing. Um, it's uh, I was very lucky to be safe. Thank God I was, uh, had 12 step training, um, in how to pray and meditate and, um, and basically be a geek. I mean, that was my, my original technique in going to prison was I was going to, I was going to be as much of a badass physically as I possibly could, but everywhere in every other way, I was going to be a complete geek. So I like
1: work out and read exactly. Well,
0: yeah. and, And read the, you know, read Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. I, I read Alcoholics Anonymous probably 40 times. So where
1: does, where does, where does sobriety, you know, come in at this equation between, you know, waking up out of the blackout and being in Chino?
0: It, it was a two year period from the time that I committed the crime between the time I got out of Chino. So, um, I was sober from the, that night. So mm-hmm. they, I had to go to jail or immediately. And, uh, they, they um, let me out to a rehab um, as part of my bail and I never had a drink uh, after that. Mm-hmm. And um, pornography and prostitutes and all that followed soon as far as um, mm-hmm. um, clean cleanliness from that and smoking took a lot longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you,
1: did you go right to 12-step? And I went to did. Pasadena Recovery Center. Oh, you did. Uh-huh. I'm
0: very fortunate to immediately be befriended by a guy named Bob Forrest. Yes. Uh, oh. Who I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. And um, he turned me on to bob
1: saved khalil's life oh is that right yeah yeah. Yeah,
0: bob's a force in the in the 12-step world and uh at the time he was just a van driver for pasadena recovery center you know and he was he he was the guy that drove me around to all my court hearings and and my interesting all these expert witnesses that i had to Mm -hmm. see and psychiatrists that had to say that i wasn't a sexual deviant sexual predator i think that's what they call it they needed to make sure i wasn't you know mm-hmm. and so i saw psychiatrists and stuff for that and so bob turned me on to the you know he, he took me to a lot of his meetings he went to and and i kind of he was an, he's an atheist i don't know atheist agnostic so i could really relate to him and he really um i you know that's a it's a rehab that's based on the 12 steps so you know it's not um you don't have to be in 12 steps to do it but i but i kind of bought in I mean, I thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to kill myself. You know, as soon as I was sentenced to prison, I just figured I would just go jump off the Grand Canyon or something. But meanwhile, I was kind of doing the 12 step thing and, Mm -hmm. you know, in your rehab, you just eat donuts and flirt with the girls and play ping pong and smoke a bunch of cigarettes. So, (laughs) you know,
1: (laughs) for (laughs) the listeners, you know, you might know Bob Forrest because he's Dr. Drew's partner in those television shows. I think they, they have a podcast together now and stuff like that. So, you know. He's sort of out there in the public eye a little bit yeah at but the time like he, he was very helpful to you
0: yeah no bob was great he he kind of turned me on you know i still had a lot of ego i was like you know i'm i'm not a i'm not just a normal alcoholic i'm a badass lawyer who mm-hmm. you know came from nothing and created this thing and so i still need a little ego so he took me to some meetings that was a lot of celebrities and stuff in them and that was kind of um good for me at the
1: time you know
0: I'm uh, probably not now oh,
1: because I deserve to be in the room with the, yeah, yeah. With the fancy people.
0: Yeah. So I was, <laughs> you know, I had a lot of friends who were, fr- I call them, fr- it's funny because Khalil brought that up in his thing. Uh-huh. I we used to call them friends of chili, you know, a lot of, a lot of friends of chili. Yeah. Uh,
1: the- <laughs> There's a lot of that that goes on in, in, uh, in LA 12 stuff. You know, I got the reverse. Like I, you know, my lawyer, when I was facing jail time as a result of two DUIs in a row, literally like back to back and like not good ones. Uh, you know, I was I was in the same boat as you thinking, I'm a lawyer, like, you know, I have this big job and like, you know, I, I can't be somebody who goes to, you know, people like me don't go to jail. And I was in that, my lawyer could tell, like, I was wrestling with that kind of entitlement and, and ego issue. And he's just like, what are you talking about? You're a criminal. Of course, you're going to go to jail. Yeah, You know, and I was like, what? You're my lawyer. You're not supposed to say that to me. But that was like the reality check that I needed to make me realize, like, the true gravity of the situation that i was in yeah
0: yeah no i mean that uh, addiction has no it's it, addiction is perfect in, in so far as it does not discriminate right, right? i mean it just, it's, it's like
1: of course you're gonna go to chino like yeah. look what you did you attempted like yeah. the story is insane you're going to prison dude right right <laughs> like i mean you know um robert downey jr Basically, did the
0: exact same thing I did. He broke into somebody's house. He didn't. He wasn't mm-hmm. naked. There was nobody home, so he got lucky. Now, yeah. Regard. When I
1: was reading your thing, I was like, "This is this is quite similar." And he and was it, in a blackout. He didn't. He didn't think that he was going. He thought he was going into his own house, right? right. Or something like that.
0: Yeah. And I thought I was going into a you know the massage mm-hmm. parlor, but mine was probably a little worse. But he did the same thing I did. He went to he did ninety days at the Chino. Um, I'm sure, it's a little different when you're a celebrity. Your your experience in there, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, no. What I did was horrible. I don't think I. The intent part of their crime probably doesn't hold water, but I wasn't willing to risk 20 years in prison to see whether a jury would convict a tall, white, bright, and polite white guy. Right. So you, <laughs> you, just, you
1: just took a deal. I mean, basically, the alternative would have been to fight it, go to a jury trial. And even if you could prevail on on the legal grounds, <clears throat> I mean, a jury is going to look at you and go, we can't just let this guy go. Exactly. Like. You know, like we got we to gotta hurt him somehow. Well, this gets into a little bit of the
0: legal technicalities of it, but there was a charge of uh, criminal threats and I had no defense to it because I had no memory of what was said and he, the victim does have a memory of it. So it basically would have been a directed verdict and I had mm-hmm. a minimum sentence for that alone. So even a complete victory for me at trial would have meant at least some probably two years, mm-hmm. maybe more. So that was a lot of part of the reason right. I did it. The other thing is I was, you know, I'd spent $50,000 on my attorney at that time. I had a big shot attorney, um, Mark Worksman. And, um, you know, I couldn't afford to go to trial on top of that. It would have been another fifty grand, you know.
1: Right. And the other aspect of this is that you come out the other side uh, with this label of being a sex offender. And right. that's something that, that is just going, I don't know how that works, but... As Far as I can tell, that's going to haunt you forever, right? Does that ever get undone or can that ever be sort of vanquished? Well, in California, uh, registered sex offenders are
0: lifetimes, there's a lifetime sentence for most uh, convictions, almost all of them. Um, so there's a lot of politics involved in that, but uh, yeah, no, it, it's a lifetime thing. Mm-hmm. And there's some laws that have, but they've tried to change recently. And uh, mine, I'm at, I'm at a level where you don't see my address, but you know, you type me into the into the old Google search I'll come up on, um, mm-hmm. as a registered sex offender, you know, and I don't dress, obviously I don't dress that in my book because I, my book ends on the day I get out of prison, but the, um, wow, you know, the label here in criminology, we have this thing called labeling theory, which is basically like they talk about, you don't want to put uh, adolescents in jail because you don't want to label them a criminal. Cause once they're labeled a criminal, it really affects them. And, um, you know the effects of being a registered sex offender mentally. Not what society's done to me because of it. I've had nobody. I, neighbors don't come up to me and go, "Hey, you're a registered sex offender. Get out of here." Like I've never had that happen. Never. Mm-hmm. Nobody has affected me. But the mental effect of it on me, whew, mm-hmm. fuck, it's intense, man. Yeah. Um, I, 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 but I'm I can't proud to be who I am, and you know the reason I took a long time to write, write this book and get it out is because I'm finally okay with who I am, and I can just say this out loud to a you got a pretty big audience.
1: Yeah, well that comes across loud and clear like you really do own it. Like you're, you know, it's it's that adage from recovery, we shall not regret the past or, you know, wish to shut the door on it. You really are in a place where you can own it and you can talk about it in a, you know, implacable, you know, objective way and I think that that's really powerful for people out there that might be struggling with this to be able to hear that you can not only overcome it but To even survive the circumstances that you had to survive and still be, you know, breathing air in and out of your lungs and, and, you know, try to put the pieces back together.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's an intense thing. It's It's a really intense thing, the whole registered sex offender thing on society and the effects of it and how far, it's gone politically, you know, it started out as this idea that we wanted to protect society. And it's kind of got to the point where it's a political token where every politician that wants to get elected wants to be tough on crime. So no one will change the laws and all they'll do is increase them. Mm -hmm. So it's more and more and more, you know, we all want to be protected from the child molester who is, you know, has three conviction for child molestation and is a danger to society. Which is kind of unrealistic because those type of people don't even make it out anymore. They're they're civilly confined even after they survive. Right, their but presence. I can
1: understand that intention. Like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, of course, that's valid for sure. But I think it's been extended now that even you know some guy who's out drunk and 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 takes a takes a leak on a tree, you know, yeah. in a park could be in that same could get that label and be in that same situation. Yeah,
0: and the scary thing about it is we've taken the discretion away from judges. The judge that heard my case was actually a, a member of, of you know twelve stepper, and. Um, you know he he did everything he possibly could to get the DA to not have me be a registered sex offender even after the after mm-hmm. the conviction after I got out of jail actually pulled the DA in and said hey you know this is ridiculous this guy doesn't belong here and and they they didn't do anything about it they you know they mm-hmm. refused to do anything about it there's no political if they take me off and i and i do something wrong then they they're screwed mm-hmm. they leave me on and no harm you know no harm mm-hmm. can come to them you know so it's a, it's a crazy thing. Our society is very damaging to society, but um, that's kind of a meta thing. As far as my personally experience with it, it was like, obviously, God put me where my bottom was what my bottom needed to be, and I was challenged with this. And I, I feel like I've been—in some ways, I'm honored to have such a, such a burden to carry and to be having to take on the spiritual journey that's required to go through this and live life with this label— and to reach a point where I'm okay with it mm-hmm. and embrace it, actually.
1: That's, that's the courageous aspect of, of how you have to approach life, right? I mean, you are convicted felon uh, and registered sex offender. You've been disbarred. You can't pursue the career that you would like to pursue, that you spent years you know, getting yourself in, into, in a place to, to do, to take yourself out of the circumstances in, under which you were raised. How do you, how do you move forward? How do you move forward? How do you wake up in the morning and face life? And you mentioned earlier, like when you first met Bob Forrest, you you were attracted to his kind of agnostic, um, atheist perspective. But I'm not so sure that that's going to serve you in approaching this new phase of your life. Yeah, no. That was just a
0: start, you know. The doorknob, the, mm-hmm. the using the doorknob or the a group as your God is it doesn't work for too long. It might get you sober for a little while, but um, and clean. Um, uh, you know, the one thing I did was I immediately got a girlfriend who had a lot of time. I'll uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> solve the problem. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, in a ways, it kind of did. I, I got this girlfriend who was this amazing person. Who I was more of a fan of than I was necessarily attracted romantically. Now that I look back on it, but she was she had some time. She was this incredible story, kind of like mine, and she was living it and walking it. She introduced me to, to you know I'm, I I live on the East Side, you know Silver Lake, mm-hmm. um, Los Angeles East Side, which
1: is who's this, calling who a hipster. Oh, no, I'm totally, I, hey, I, I buy in. <laughs> I'm in now. I did, back in the day, I did You're I, out in the suburbs <laughs> right now. This is like the Orange County of yeah. LA. This couldn't be less hipsterish. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: I was introduced to this, uh, you know, where a lot of artists, artists live and this whole program out there. It's huge. You know, mm-hmm. the 12 Steps are huge out there. And, um, they, I mean, they're huge all over LA, but there was just a certain group out there. And she was very into spirituality. And, you know, I grew up in the Inland Empire, which is basically the Midwest of um of, mm-hmm. uh, Southern California and you know therapy please you know I remember she took me to Ama. you know Ama the, hu- the
1: hugging saint the I've hugging been to Amma twice me too I've yeah. been to Amma twice <laughs> explain and to people who are listening who Amma is because most people probably so don't Amma's
0: an Indian woman Indian from India and she <clears throat> she her practice is hugging people and you would think that's crazy especially if you're me back then And mm-hmm. but she hugs you and it blows your mind because she transmits love through her hugs and mm-hmm. she and you can't help the force of it, the power of it. Even if it's just the people around, there's thousands of people that go to LAX when she comes into thousands.
1: L.A. You wait in line all day. And my experience your knees with that. inching forward to yeah. have the opportunity to hug her. We named one of our dogs after her. Oh, yeah, We have nice. a dog named Ama. Ama. And so <laughs> I She's so huggable. I
0: was introduced to these spiritual concepts and these, um, you know... I also, you know, I'm still a member of uh, Agape International Spiritual Center. Oh,
1: okay, cool. And Reverend so, Michael Reverend and Michael Beckwith, yeah, and or, Ricky. Got to get him on his show. I would love to have him on the show. He, he him, and his—they are amazing people. And what they've done with Agape is truly remarkable.
0: Yeah, I went on a silent meditation just recently with them, and it was like is awesome I, uh, agape beautiful. is is that's where i found my god was like was an agape mm-hmm. um and and explain what agape is because agape oh, international is a kind of an offshoot of uh, science of mind not to be not to be uh um, confused, confused with, with Scientology? Scientology. Yeah. Please don't. It's the um, Ernest Holmes, uh, exactly, science of
1: mind approach,
0: right? Ernest Holmes, science of mind, uh, and basically, it, it's it's a non, It's not really a church. It's a non-religious organization that believes in, in spirituality, basically, and, and uses a lot of the teachings of Jesus, and Mahatma Gandhi, and Martin Luther King, and and the Mahabharata, and all kinds of different uh, Hindu, Buddha, everything you can imagine, and it has a lot to do with science of mind, and and um, you know, it's just really, it's about you know we're all one, we're all one, and that you know the way I interpret it is I always you know start with love, you know every single situation I go into I start with love, you know, and um, so I was introduced to agape, ama, this spiritual way of living, kind of all through this girlfriend. Yeah, all through this girlfriend, and she was a very interesting person. Um, she was, I remember the first time we went out, I went into her room and she or her apartment and she started playing songs and she was singing and I was just like, Oh my God, why aren't you a star? You know, why aren't you a a star? Like what's going on here? And she kind of was. And, and we went out for like uh, five years and she was amazing. And, um, she ended up now she's a, super well-known author and, mm-hmm. and, uh, has written a bunch of books and is wild, not wildly famous, but pretty damn famous. And, Can
1: you, uh, are you comfortable saying, or yeah, Tracy, saying? Tracy
0: McMillan, uh-huh. and she's written a bunch of books and she, she wrote on a lot of big shows and stuff. And you know, she'd been on Oprah and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, you know, we had a very tumultuous relationship. She had just got through a divorce and was had, was transferring her career and she basically was living in an apartment and doing this thing. but I swear to God she believed that she was gonna make it. She really did. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of blown away. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're in your 40s, you've got a kid, you live in this small apartment and you think you're gonna be this big shot writer. And sure enough, she was, mm-hmm. you know. Wow. And so I kind of followed her lead and um, and uh, she just introduced me to to not just what the 12 steps were, but what it was like actually living them, not just being in the rooms and being like, you know talking to people the way you talk in 12 steps but actually taking it out into the world and believing in things and believing in love even when your circumstances do not look like they support that. I mean I was a two-strike registered I was a two-strike felon registered sex offender disbarred lawyer. I didn't have a job. I remember talking to her and being like, "What what the hell am I going to do? And she goes, you know, there's only really one industry where they don't give a damn what you do. And that's the entertainment industry. As long as you do the work. So I, (laughs) (laughs) that's so true. So I got involved in entertainment and I did, um, I started as a PA and, you know, I was a hard worker. So I would go on these little shoots and I would start out as a PA. And by the end of the job, I'd be the, you know, I'd be the assistant director. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I did that. And then I ended up getting a, a job, you know, several years later, um as a uh i was a contract manager this is crazy i I could write a book about this but i became the contract manager for one of the largest steel companies in the world um cmc and they're the they're the ones that do the rebar for pretty much all the buildings downtown Mm -hmm. one of the biggest companies biggest rebar companies in the world and as having disclosed that i was a two-strike felon, disbarred lawyer, registered sex offender, actually mm-hmm. got into this Fortune 500 company. How did you squeak through that? Well, when I interviewed with them, they were very
1: happy because I was massively overqualified
0: to be doing this. And uh, right. they liked me a way, lot. I
1: mean, basically, like, just to set the stage, because yeah. like, I know how this stuff works, like, they look at it like, we're going to get this lawyer, but we're going to pay him what we would pay a paralegal, and he's going to do lawyer work, even though he's not going to say he's going to do lawyer work, and we're going to save a ton of money on our outside counsel fees. Yeah, kind or of like ta- that. Or alleviate the burden from our general right, counsel. Right, right. Basically. You know, I mean – they. I- you know, I did the contract. I did the
0: rebar contract on the four Oh five freeway bridge overpass, which is the largest construction Mm -hmm. job in Southern California. The last 20 years, you know, it seems
1: like it's been, it's just finished. right? Like it seems like it's been ever since I've been living in LA, they've been working on it.
0: I mean, I remember I signed that, I negotiated that contract, the legal part of it, not the, not the rebar part of it, but I I negotiated legal contract and signed this contract. I think our part of it was, you know, over a quarter million quarter, $250 million or something Mm -hmm. crazy, you know, the total contract was almost a billion anyways. And uh, so it, so i told them i said i'm a you know i told them my story but i always say i I was convicted of a violent assault that i committed during a blackout you kind of buy that you're kind of like okay with that you got you're drunk (laughs) alien details though you're like okay so you got in a fight when you're drunk okay okay i mean they didn't say that but that's probably the assumption right Right. so then i got the job you're
1: allowing them to like foster that
0: right so i so they offered me the job and i said hey I've got a bunch of entertainment jobs on the loop. I need you to write me a letter of you know, locking me in. So they wrote me an offer letter that I accepted. And then the criminal, the background check came back and they called me up and they were like, Oh my God, what in the hell have we done? Like, wow, you can't work for us. Mm-hmm. And so I sent them a letter from the judge and the transcripts and all these letters from all these different people. You know, I had well, I submitted probably 50 letters to the judge of recommendation from lawyers and all kinds of people and stuff. And they, you know, they, they bought the story. They, I mean, they understood the story, like what had happened to me. And there was this weird kind of thing where they were a small, they were a big rebar player in Southern California, but they'd been bought out by this giant company. So they were making a lot of money. This is before the recession. So the big company kind of just let them, they were in Dallas. Mm-hmm. The big company just kind of let them do their thing as long as they were making money. So they didn't, they could really hire without really going through their big corporate people. So I was kind of a secret. They they didn't see. they didn't let me know because mm. they'd already hired me. They were locked in, so they couldn't. So that's that's kind of what happened with that. And
1: uh, that was crafty to make them sign that thing before you quit your other job. I <laughs> Otherwise, that
0: wouldn't have happened. I had to. I had a couple uh, two hundred dollar a day, you know, uh, production jobs. Right. <laughs> so you still work for that company now? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, the recession hit, and then what happened when the recession hit? The Dallas came in and said, "Okay, now we're going to take over. Clean you guys house. aren't making money and clean house." And when they found out who I was. You know, that was it. I was, I was, uh, I, it was the perfect thing to happen at the time. I was, it was not a great place to be. And, you know, it was, it was hard. I was qualified. I, I would always say in my mind, you know, I'm qualified to be my boss's boss's boss. And here I am, you know, negotiating mm-hmm. these contracts and, you know, maybe a little arrogant, but it was kind of true. So eventually I got laid off with about, I mean, they laid off 60% of their workforce. and they had 10,000 people working for them. Right. And by the end of the recession, they had 4,000 people working for them.
1: And so how do you make it work now?
0: Um, I do a bunch of different things. I do uh, legal work within, you know, that I'm allowed to do for lawyers. You know, they hire me for very inexpensive and I write motions and things. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, um,
1: um, I'm a bit of a fixer, um, you know, like. Like, a, uh, what's this, like, a, like a Michael Clayton? Like uh, Ray, what's a uh, Ray Donovan? like on a very, very small <laughs> scale of that uh-huh. a very small scale like that. I'm
0: kind of the guy you know who knows a lot of real estate agents and knows a lot of lawyers and and does a little odd work here and there. I, I have a few different uh, financial type businesses that I that I dabble in and, and uh, the book, you know the book makes a little revenue right. and stuff and and uh, yeah, my fiance and I make it work.
1: So you're engaged to be married now. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Just recently, thank you, thank you. Yeah. How she's long wonderful have you been with her? Uh, um, What's her name?
0: Her, her name's Teresa. Mm-hmm. Um, she's amazing, and uh, God, about a year. I mean, it was like one of those things where you just meet the person and you realize, oh, all that time, all those other girls, where I thought I had to work to make this work. It's not like that. Not that you don't have to work to make relationships work, but like you just know that she's the one. That's like great, I knew man. she's the one. We got got engaged and um,
1: that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. I'm stoked. She's amazing. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, voicing change media, this beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing change media will feature shows like the proof, with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda D'Academy. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So here you are, not just uh, breathing, but actually. Thriving, You've got this book out here. And I want to get into, like, what inspired you to write the book? Like, did you, is it something you always wanted to do? Or did you feel an obligation to address this issue? Or what What? what was it inside of you that felt like you needed to express this I, publicly? Well, okay. So
0: I love having this book so that I can say, you know, here it is. You want to know what's up? Mm-hmm. Here it is, you know. Because when you tell your story, it's, it's hard to tell my story in a short amount of time. There's so much to <laughs> a cocktail it. Cocktail you know? party. Yeah. What's your story? Oh, I mean, I've had that Where to too. Begin. You know, yeah. like what do you do? Oh, I just wrote a memoir. What's it about? Like, I always say to friends, like all roads lead. To bad things at cocktail parties for me. Oh, you used to be a lawyer, da, da, da. Mm-hmm. registered sex offender. Oh, you wrote a memoir, da, da, da. registered sex offender. You know, every single thing <laughs> every leads to bro. that. So it's like, fuck. I either I have to make up something or whatever. But I don't anymore. I'm just like, oh, I wrote a memoir. I had this crash and burn, blah blah blah. And that, you know, it helps. How me did you I get, get to help the people.
1: point? How did you get to the point where you could just own it like that and and not be sheepish or triggered by the prospect of having to talk about it?
0: Well, the registered sex offender thing. I'm still like I don't go to cocktail parties and announce that I'm a registered sex offender, but I do go to cocktail but parties. You're and,
1: telling a lot of people right now. Oh yeah, yeah. You're doing it in a way that it's not. You're not like uh, recoiling from. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Um, uh,
0: I, I. You know, I. This happened after I wrote it, but I, I remember hearing Monica Lewinsky talk about how she wanted to own her story, and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I love that. You know. I love the idea of like I own my story. The government doesn't get to own my story. The state bar doesn't get to own my story. The district attorney's office doesn't get to own my story. I own my story. It's mine. This is what happened. I put it in
1: here. It's all true. You can check the records. This is it. Mm -hmm. You know. I don't. um, It's like Brene Brown. If you read Brene Brown, oh, she's got a book on this same issue that I think you should check out. Oh, okay. All about shame and owning your story and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Yeah, right there. But you know, and I
0: just was like, I can't live in fear because it just. It'll eat you up, man. I mean, you know, I'm not allowed to go on a, I'm not allowed to go into a school, you know? So Mm -hmm. for instance, um, I had a girlfriend who had a kid and we, um, the girlfriend I mentioned earlier and we, you know, she'd have a school, he'd have a school event and I'd have to think to myself, oh damn, am I going to really go to that school and register at that school as a sex offender and risk the idea that all the parents find out, um, you know,
1: mm. you—it's yeah, all these things like you don't even think about. Oh, I mean, how it impacts st- you.
0: You know, and the stigma is so gnarly because when you sell somebody a registered sex offender, they don't think, "Oh, in a blackout, you broke into some guy's house." They think you molested somebody or you raped somebody in a mm-hmm. violent way. And wouldn't you? I mean, you have kids. Mm-hmm. You, you're gonna. You could do anything to protect your kids, right? You're not gonna take a risk on somebody, right? If somebody moves in across the street from you, it's a registered sex offender. You're gonna be pretty damn concerned about it. So. You know, it's a, it's a tricky thing. But, but um, my story is what my story is. I don't think I should be a registered sex offender anyway from the, what happened. But I am, you know, and everything happens for a reason. And I, I own my story. And um, I didn't want to live in fear anymore, you know, mm-hmm. take me or leave me. And the interesting thing is, I guess because I've been in my community so long, you know, I've, been in, I've, I've stayed on the east side. And I've been going to meetings and different programs, particularly the main one, for, uh, you know, the entire time. And so people know me you know you can't hide from who you are you can hide from who you are when you meet somebody a couple of times but you can't hide who you are people can see they're like you know we're like dogs we we know who's who mm-hmm. there's people that are squeaky clean on the outside but you know they're they're creepy and there's people who have the like me who have a pretty creepy story who I, I just don't think i come across that way i think you know when i move into a neighborhood i, I think you know you're safer now that i'm here you Know your property value might went down a little bit, but, <laughs> but you're safer. Not that, not that I'm, I'm right. you only you can't find even my, my address when you look me up online. It's I'm not of that ilk of the registration, but you know what I'm saying.
1: Oh, there's like different tiers, like, yeah, tell you exactly yeah. where they live. If, if you're if a you've child, done X or Y, yeah, if you've know. done certain crimes that are of a certain, you know. A, a, Right. Uh, so for you, it's just like a zone. You're yeah. A yeah. Zone. yeah. I, I got you. I'm in a zone.
0: <laughs> a zone. Uh, I just, you know, my, my, I want my calling card to be, I want to be your mama's favorite sex offender, you know?
1: <laughs> there you go. Well, you can print those cards up today if you want. You know, yeah. That. I mean, what do you want people to get out of your story and your book? Like, what is the, the takeaway, you know, perhaps if you're somebody who maybe is, you know, suffering from some form of you know, the affliction that was your downfall.
0: Well, I want people to, uh, you know, I mean, my, my primary purpose, uh, consistent with the program that saved my life is to be of service to other people. Right. So my, I am more qualified to be of service to people who have the same addiction that I have than anyone else, because I have those addictions. I mean, that's what Bill Wilson taught us. Right. So, uh, I want people to read this story and be moved by it and see like, you know, the feelings. I mean, to me, A memoir. The quality of a memoir isn't the quality, isn't the uh, crunchy top. It's the it's whether you exposed your feelings or not. Mm -hmm. Like I've I've been a memoir fan for a long time, and I've read a lot of memoirs. And the memoirs I like are the ones that expose your feelings, and those are the ones that
1: that's what affect people. um, Well, that's what allows the reader to emotionally connect. Yeah, you know, it's like the story. Like you can tell crazy stories. But if you're not tapping in, tapping that emotional vein that you can relate to, it's gonna the power of that is gonna be lost on you. And I think it, it, that's very clear in your book. Like I could tell you put a lot of, um, you know, considered thought into making sure that you were honestly and and openly conveying what it's like to be in that emotional state in a very vulnerable way. Like, I, I got that immediately. And as a fellow addict alcoholic, like, I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm right there. Like, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think that is going to help a lot of people.
0: Thanks. I mean, that's my, yeah. I mean, two purposes. One was to, I want to own my story. And the second one is I want to be of service to people. You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making any money off this book. I just, you know, it sells for pay, basically its cost.
1: How did the book come together? Like, how did it all happen for you? Um, you know,
0: I was considering writing this book right after the, right after the financial crisis. And I had a lot of friends who were, you know, published authors and stuff. So I thought I would get a deal with no problem with my story. Uh-huh. And I called around, I talked to agents and stuff and they'd be like, no, 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 no. And so I ended up forming my own publishing company and, oh, you and did? doing it myself. And oh, wow. We're actually taking on other authors uh-huh. and uh, considering, you know, we, we have another author that we're going to be putting a book out soon. And so, it's oh, super so interesting. I'm, you know, I figure I'm an attorney. I know how to uh-huh. do uh, publishing and, and, uh, Teresa, who's the, who basically runs it. She does, you know, she did my video trailer. She did my website. Um, and she's really good at it, and she did a lot of the stuff, you know. So my, I guess technically it's self-published, but if you were to look at it, you would never, you would never think that. Yeah, else. I
1: didn't think so. I just thought it was an imprint that I wasn't familiar with. Yeah, so it's a lot. It's, it's, it's like a yeah. It's like you created your own imprint. That's cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so I want to take that, and because there's other authors out there that don't get uh, that are kind of are kind of in between like Mm -hmm. they don't they're not going to sell that much because of they're not marketable for whatever reason I mean it's a lot like the music industry I think nowadays yeah it's It's basically if you don't have a platform you're. You're. They don't want you. They don't really care how good your writing is unless you're established, dude. It's really a business.
1: Yeah, they're buying. They're buying your audience. Yeah, so, and I don't they have. Want them. You, they want you to come with an audience, and 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 that has nothing to do with your talent as a writer. Yeah, and I didn't have an audience, and
0: so they weren't really interested in me, especially when it was a recession. I think now, if I had the same thing, and I could probably sell. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I don't know whether I will sell my next book, but but um, we'll see. Interesting. And what is uh recovery look like for you now so you're 12 years a little over 12 years sober at this point
0: yeah yeah I'll be 13 in July or which is the date of the the crime Um, it's my whole life you know I I I meditate every day Um, I have a prayer practice I go to meetings um, in two different programs uh, two three anywhere from one to five times a week I have sponsor I have a sponsor and I have sponsees um some have a lot of time and some have very little time some call me some don't mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know it's it's my it's the basis of my life it's it's what it's it was the last house in the block for me it was what saved my life and so and it's a program that works in hard times you know like they say i don't do it because i owe it i do it because it's the only way i know how to live you know it's through Mm-hmm. the 12 steps mm-hmm. and it's blossomed down into other things. You know, like I said, I'm a member of agape and I practice science of mind and I meditate and those things. But really it's the, the, the mothership is the 12 steps.
1: Right. And you've never lost sight of that being the number one priority.
0: No, no. I mean, you know, it's great. It's uh, look what happened to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm very graced by not by having a certain bottom. I mean, when people say, "Oh, I could go out and drink again," I'm like, "Oh man, you know,
1: I've been <laughs> well." Wa- yeah, but you could. I mean, listen, you know, alcoholics addicts—they're crafty. You could come up with some argument. Well, it was only because, like, I grabbed my jacket, you know, and the wallet was in right, my right. jacket. If that didn't happen, none of this would have happened, and you could play the victim and, you know, get into some crazy narrative and then talk yourself right back into, you know, a drink and whatever behavior comes packed with that. Right.
0: Well, and the other thing too is I, I, I love my life. I love it. I didn't want to be a player when I was younger. I was so scared of poverty. I mean, my key word to life was, and to this day is wholesome. I wanted Mm -hmm. to be wholesome. I never had... The idea of being this player who went to bars and slept with a lot of women and stuff and did one-night stands and was trying to be cool was not me. I wanted to be a geek.
1: That's a very important point. That's a very imp- – because I think I think that that gets lost because there's this idea, well, you just want to be with all these women. You're not that guy. You're not like the guy who wants to be at the party. No, no. I'm, and that's what makes it all the more like ironic and bizarre yeah i look i look back at myself
0: then and i like oh, what a tool you know and why you, you just not who i am now is who i love to be i look at myself in the mirror and i'm okay with it i get up every day and i'm stoked to be alive you know mm-hmm. i like you know like you're talking your podcast about your training and stuff like i get up and i you know my passion now is golf and it's kind of saved my life in the way that ultra has saved your life yeah. but but i get up and i'm just stoked that i get to do it i'm so stoked i get to go to meetings i get to be of service to people i'm good at being of service to people Mm -hmm. because i've been through this thing and i've been doing it for 12 years and i i'm lucky enough to have this woman that i love and i live in a nice house and i have a good uh living i'm not rich or anything but i'm certainly uh fine i live in a community i love with a lot of artists and i have a bunch of friends most of whom are are in the program and just a beautiful friggin' life i mean Mm -hmm. why would i why would i ever risk that over some over getting high you know no way that's a
1: that's an amazing perspective from where you've come from yeah thanks (laughs) so I want to I kind of want to wrap it up with a final like inquiry or you know line of thought if somebody's listening to this and this is kind of how I kind of always you know wrap up conversations with people like yourself like if somebody's listening to this and they're they're caught in that cycle of addiction perhaps they're harboring you know some secret second life where they're you know doing some of the things that you were doing or find themselves compelled by that world but don't know how to find their way out or can't grab onto the solution. You know, their elevator is going down uh, and maybe they're not ready to get off it yet, but they know maybe even unconsciously that they're going to have to soon. Like, how do you speak to that guy? Well, I would
0: say to them, first of all, reach out for help, you know, and reach out for help on multiple levels, you know, go to therapy and be honest if you don't have money for therapy, go to a twelve-step program that addresses whatever your issue is—whether it's alcohol, nicotine, alanon, whatever it is. Go there, be honest, uh, and there's help for you if you want it. You know, um, your bottom—your bottom—is when you stop digging. Mm-hmm. And if you want your bottom to be really low, like I did apparently, then it, it can be that low. And if you don't—if <laughs> yeah. you don't—what's your pain threshold? Yeah, what's your yeah. pain threshold? So. Um, join us. And even there's a lot of people who stop in at these meetings and decide that they're not it's not for them. But why not do the research and check it out before your life gets completely unmanageable?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I noticed in in upfront in your book, you have kind of an author's note where you talk about um, the tradition of anonymity in 12 step. And this is something that came up in the conversation with Khalil, like, I never know where that that line is of what we can or should talk about and what we should avoid and certainly we're speaking into microphones right now yeah we're both members of 12-step and we're both advocates of that uh lifestyle as a means of recovery but then i always feel guarded or cagey about what i can or cannot share and don't you know shouldn't share because i don't want to traverse that tradition but I'm not crystal clear on where that line sits. Like, where is that line for you? Obviously, you're, you're not anonymous in your own sobriety, and you've written an entire book about your journey, um, but anonymity still vests with, obviously, with other people and certain aspects of the 12-step program itself.
0: Yeah, well, for me, I, you know, the, the tradition is that we are an- anonymous at the level of press, radio, and film, and this is obviously, you know, f- falls within radio. And um, my book obviously falls within the public, public right. press domain, too. So my thing is, in the book and in this podcast, to the extent I was successful at it, I try to identify myself as a 12-stepper, mm-hmm. not affiliated with any particular program. And and uh, maybe you can read between the lines, or maybe I even accidentally identified which program. But the bottom line is that um, uh, I think you can identify yourself as a 12-stepper or someone in recovery and not necessarily mm-hmm. violate the anonymity Um part of it, because I do respect the program. And I'm not sure whether that tradition is the same as it used to be. Uh, but the bottom line is, it's there I respect it as best I mm-hmm. as best I can and still own my story. Yeah. So you know, and if I can help somebody, um, if I can help somebody, then that's awesome. And I have you know, the people that have contacted me, you know, after a lot of people have reviewed the book and have contacted me and said, Oh, my God, I sent this to somebody and they're going to 12 step program now or something like that. So, you know, that's that's the beauty of it, right? We, right? we get to save ourselves and then we get to help s- save some others through this program. It's right. pretty, pretty bitching.
1: Well, uh, it's quite a journey that you've been on, man. And, uh, <laughs> it's been an honor and a privilege to, uh, to have you sit here and, and, and share openly your story. Um, it's a painful story, uh, to hear. I can't imagine what it's been like for you to live through it. Uh, but to come out the other side <clears throat> and to be able, like you said, to, to own it, and to be this kind of lighthouse of, of hope for other people out there that are suffering um, from something that I think is, is truly pernicious and, and lives in the dark corners and the underbelly of our culture, but at a profound level that I think we don't uh, speak to. Adequately, And I would imagine there's a lot of people that are suffering out there. So I think that you are of tremendous service in, in, in carrying this frequency for other people to latch on to. So thanks for that. And the book is great. I think we need to close it down with you explaining the title because it is a little bit of an inside joke. Oh, right? oh. <laughs> yeah straight, over straight diet. pepper diet straight you pepper... explain it up in front but like for yeah. most people are gonna be straight pepper diet what does that mean it's a diet book well straight pepper diet is a, a diet book of sorts <laughs> straight pepper
0: diet is a reference to page 69 of the of this fourth edition of big right book so of... ironic that's page sixty nine. yeah yeah right <laughs> <laughs> sixth grade joke uh alcoholics and so basically it's a reference to the idea that uh some would have uh no flair for their fare. i mean no no seasoning for their food and other would would uh, have all a straight pepper diet and it's a metaphor for sex you know Mm -hmm. and uh that a necessarily has no opinion on that but it's just a a a lifting of that phrase straight pepper diet which basically means Mm -hmm. you know a very overactive sexual appetite it's a very clever title thanks hopefully a doesn't sue me
1: that's right. You know. <laughs> is that a violation of the traditions?
0: Yes. Uh, no, it is a violation of traditions. Copyright. It might be a violation of copyright laws, <laughs> yeah. but uh, from what I understand, a is not litigious, and uh, there might have been some other. He might have lifted it from somebody else, and the book is probably nearing its uh, what eighty-five year right. uh, copyright.
1: Well, neither of us are practicing lawyers anymore, so we can't speak to that, right? I, oh, definitely
0: not. I don't <laughs> practice law. I've practiced the law in a long time.
1: <laughs> if I could give you my bar membership, I would. Oh, man, that would be cool. Yeah. Maybe in a <laughs> parallel. Is it from like parallel- Cornell or something? Or could- in a parallel universe, <laughs> I would grant you that, my friend. Thanks, brother. All right. Well, thanks for dropping by. Uh, the book is called Straight Pepper Diet. Check it out. Use the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com to uh, to explore it on Amazon. And if you want to learn more uh, about just – what's the best place to find you? Your website? Yeah, straightpepperdietmemoir.com. Uh, okay, cool. And you're on Twitter and all those places, right? Yeah, Twitter and Facebook. Uh, just your name, uh, yeah. Twitter's yeah, just my name. N a u s Joseph yeah. Naus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Cool. And what's going on uh, with Nick and the the option and the project? Or can you speak to that? Or is that all like mm-hmm. off?
0: No, no. Nick yeah. is out there rolling with it. He wants to turn it into um, like a you know like a HBO series type of thing, not a movie. Right. And I'm all down with that. That's so, cool. You it's
1: kind of like uh, like it has a little bit of a Californication vibe to it. Yeah. 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 No, he's amazing.
0: He's how I hooked up with you, mm-hmm. and um, his wife too. Actually, his wife is how
1: I hooked up. Uh, right. She's I, a blogger. Yeah. And she chased you down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. She, she's
0: a super fan, and so I was really honored by that i've been real honored you know the book the book is kind of a bit of a bernie sanders you know it's like the the populace loves it but i have had almost no media attention at all from it and i'm not quite mm-hmm. sure why other than it's not by a major publisher but
1: but that's fine with me it's hard man it's hard to, it's hard to get the media attention yeah yeah of, you know and that's fine i'm
0: just you know it is what it is and it's it's doing what it's supposed to do because that's what it is
1: well, it's uh, it, it's not expiring. You know what I mean? No, yeah, that's great. In fact, it <laughs>
0: just and the great thing about Amazon is the more you sell, the more you sell. Right? That's right. You know, so yeah. that's that's cool. So, well, uh, best of luck to you, man. Thanks. All right, go vegan, everybody.
1: Oh, that we didn't even talk about vegan stuff. Uh, no, you're gonna have to come back. Yeah, right? Yeah, like yeah. Cause you saw Cowspiracy. Totally, man. I'm yeah, totally you on that true. tip? <laughs> we didn't touch on veganism. I know. Or, I think Nick.
0: Or, no, or here's what happened. Golf. I
1: know. We got to wrap it up, but like, I'm just gonna say, like, Nick. Nick turned me on to you so I'm reading your Twitter and I'm like oh this guy's like watching Cowspiracy and doing all that you know like so you were already on like the whole veg trip well well,
0: may I make this point real quick you can cut it off if you don't like it but um,
1: this kind of really
0: is an encapsulation of what what addiction is like is I read Diet for a New America in probably Mm. 1989 I think and uh, I went to vegetarian for two years because of that and then You know, once I got into my addiction, that all went out the door and I started eating in and out burgers again. And, um, you know, I was an athlete and everything. So now 13 years later that my life is back in semblance and I, I don't have to have demoralization because I think eating meat is kind of demoralizing myself because I knew about this. I can't claim ignorance. Like so many people do. I read diet Mm -hmm. for new America and was completely sold on the idea of uh, at least a a meat-free diet. Um, in 1989 and Mm -hmm. it took me this long to get back to veganism Mm -hmm. so when you talk about the way you approach people about veganism and not doing it in a way that's very uh, aggressive but being from a more uh, compassionate place I like that because that's who I was I mean I was a guy who knew about this stuff and still didn't do it Mm -hmm. but now that I've gone I'm almost completely vegan which you know um, I've, it's changed my life. I mean, I've, I i do not have the pains that I used to have. I've lost some weight and, you know, and I wasn't like I was in bad shape before. It's just that yeah. now I'm in much better
1: shape. So how's I'm, it, how's I'm it, down. How's it, how's it impacting
0: the golf game? Well, you know, I thought that for, I've been, I'm a golf fanatic and, and for the last seven years, I've decided that I want to be a great golfer. So I've been down that road and I train very hard and, and I always have hip and lower back pain. And I thought it was just the way it is, even though I work out and I thought I ate well and everything. Well, I went on this no dairy no meat, or no dairy. I'd already been eating no meat, no sugar, and um, no meat, no dairy, no sugar. And I swear to God, the very next day I woke up and I was like, what the hell is going on with me? And I had no hip pain, no lower back pain at all. And it's just disappeared after years oh, of having this. Great. It was just amazing. And I, uh-huh. I started talking to people about it and they're like, yeah, it's anti inflammatory diet. Fucking a, Jesus, mm-hmm. that's crazy. I've been having pain for six years. That I thought was just the way life was, and then all I had to do is do that, and I'm in pain free.
1: Can't be that easy, can mm-hmm. it? Damn, I know. That's great. That's great to hear, man. That's very cool. Yeah. And you're writing another. Your your next book is going to be about the spirituality of golf, right?
0: Yeah, golf is magic. Is kind of like uh, going to be my, you know, memoir number two, and basically kind of how golf affected my. Um, as a metaphor for mm-hmm. a lot of spiritual different concepts in my path. Right.
1: If you want to to confront your uh, character defects, <laughs> start playing golf or get into a relationship. Right? Exactly. exactly. It's very similar in that regard, right? Yeah. Well, uh, well, good for you, man. Very cool. Well, come back. We'll talk more about vegan stuff and, and all that kind of good. Have you been to Little Pine yet? It's in your neighborhood, isn't it? That's Moby's new restaurant. No. Restaurant. I've heard about it. I haven't tried it yeah, yet. It's out like near the neck of the woods. Oh, cool. You know, I'll try it out. it
0: out. Cool. All right, man. Peace, peace,
1: plants. All right, you guys, that's it. That's today's show. Gotta go for you. How do you feel about that? It was intense, right? But. I really think that it is worthwhile to have that conversation. I'm really glad that I did, and I hope that you guys got uh, some good stuff out of that. Please check out this week's show notes for much, much more. I've got tons of links and resources uh, on the episode page for this episode. And for all your plant power and RRP swag and merch, visit richroll.com. And, of course, keep sending in your questions for future Q&A podcasts info at Roll. so thanks so much you guys i hope you enjoyed this episode and it gave you a couple things to really think about and grapple with this week and i'll see you soon peace plants